0: So, you live in a affluent. Is that right? No, why do you? It's
1: only two two ways to do it. Just (laughs) just do the opposite of what you think you're going to do. It's
0: not. It's it's affluent.
1: That just sounds wrong to me. That's how to pronounce the word. I didn't make it up. Oh, God. Just think about it. Maybe think of like Afflac, the Afflac duck. Oh. Affluent. (laughs) Afflac.
0: That's a good (laughs) mnemonic. It's a good what now? It was a joke. I know it's mnemonic. It was a joke. It was a joke. Everybody, (laughs) relax. Okay, so we should start right at the top of the show and remind everyone, I know I got really obnoxious about it last week, you're welcome, on, uh, the, or I should say that Marco should say you're welcome, because I noticed he cut quite a bit of my lecturing, as he should have, about how now is the <laughs> time, that, ladies huh? and gentlemen, <laughs> now is the time, ladies and gentlemen, to go to atp.fm slash store in order to find links to Cotton Bureau's website where we have all sorts of different merchandise up every year. Somebody, actually usually many somebody says, oh, I meant to do it and I forgot and I uh, can, can is there any way, is there any, no, there is no way. Pull the car over, stop your run, do whatever you do, need to do to safely equip yourself to go to atp.fm slash store, please, and buy yourself some delightful merch. And uh, I'll just leave it at that this week. Moving on, let's start with some follow-up. Rob McAlevey has written in to say that the Australia Post website Terms and Conditions have a whole section telling you what to do to get approval to link to their website. This came up within the context of, uh, what is it, Luminary, something like that? I already forgot the name of the stupid thing.
1: Yeah, Luminary. It was telling them that they you can't put my podcast in your feed.
0: So Rob writes that, you know, in the context of us saying who's in control of, you know, whether or not a podcast ends up in Luminary, and we were joking about, well, who's in control of who links to your website? Well, apparently the Australia Post has some guidelines about how you can link to their website which is uh, something else it's not that long but it's uh, surprising to me that this exists
1: oh we well, are saying this is a thing the websites used to do before they understood the web this is notable because this is a current website that is live right now that says if you want to establish <laughs> a link to the website you must first seek approval from australia posts and also if the nature or content of your website changes in any significant way you must contact the australia post yeah we'll get right on that this, this brings the <laughs> obvious question of are we allowed to link to this from our show notes
0: yeah that's a yeah. good point that is come, a good come point. and get
1: us australia post
0: <laughs> come at me bro roger allen ford who is an associate professor of law somewhere writes. uh this is <laughs> <laughs> hey whoever put this in the show notes didn't include the where i'm sorry roger i didn't want to nail it down too much
1: <laughs> he, he did give the location of where he's an associate professor of law but you know i don't know don't, don't be creepy
0: all right. By providing an app that allows members of the public to receive transmissions of album, album art and podcast audio, Luminary could be said to perform or display those copyrighted works. By embedding a podcast copyrighted artwork within the app and playing copyrighted episodes, a podcast player app would be infringing on the exclusive rights to public performance or display. I don't know why The Times and others went want to block Luminary, but they are essentially on solid legal ground doing so. I, th- this, this was, I, I should have said context. I'm sorry. This was, you know, whether or not it's even really possible for, for these podcasts and podcast hosts to block their shows from appearing Luminary. And, and I think Roger wasn't necessarily saying that this was a slam dunk case if i recall this email email correctly but i believe he was basically saying it's possible like it is certainly plausible in the mythbusters uh you know canon it is plausible that that this could be enforced in american copyright law
1: yeah this was a very long email that i was trying to condense here but you know this is another uh, instance where uh you know just because something is legal doesn't mean it's not also stupid (laughs) <laughs> or or reverse that, because it really is very silly, uh but legally speaking you there are lots of legal arguments you can make in favor of the idea that uh law what can you do That's why we have lawyers.
2: the thing with copyright law too is like i mean like much of law, if someone makes any kind of copyright legal claim against you. You can't really fight it, like you can't, because it's never going to get to a court. You're never going to get to argue with somebody. Well, what I'm doing is fair use, or what I'm doing does not constitute public performance. Like you're never going to argue that. What's going to happen is if somebody has a complaint that they want their stuff off your app or platform, they're going to complain to you and if you don't respond they're going to complain to Apple or Google, you know, the app store provider, and if they don't respond, like they're going to complain to your web host, like they can complain to you know different infrastructure providers up the chain until one of them doesn't want to deal with it and and just kicks you off. So the reality is there is no copyright law defense online. If somebody wants to make a stink, they make a stink and you have to comply. So the reality here is this is not a legal problem, this is a market problem that the only defense that anybody has against this kind of thing is making an app or service where it is not in anybody's best interest to opt out of your service. Or it is not, or like none, nobody would even think to do that because it seems so ridiculous to do that. Uh, and that's where most podcast apps land in, in that kind of area. But uh, Luminary, by angering everybody, everyone is you know, looking for things they can do because they're mad. And that's, I think that's what a lot of this stuff was. We are sponsored this week by Clear, the absolute best way to get through airport security. I hate being late to anything. And I I travel a lot, but I still get travel anxiety. I get the fear that I might be running late. So I gladly welcome any ways that I can save time at the airport. Clear helps you get through security faster so you never need to rush through the airport or run to your gate or worry about being late. With Clear, you get through security with the tap of your fingers so you can get to the gate faster and reduce that pre-flight stress. It saves time by using your eyes and fingerprints as identification rather than checking physical ID cards because they believe you, your body, you are the best ID out there. And Clear isn't just for airports either. They help you get through security faster in over 40 airports and stadiums across the country, with more being added every day. Signing up for Clear is easy. You can create your account online before going to the airport. Once you get to the airport, a Clear ambassador helps you finish the process, and then you can immediately use Clear. And they have family plans too. Up to three family members can be added at a discounted rate, and kids under 18 are free when traveling with a Clear member. So Clear is the absolute best way to get through airport security, and it works great with pre-check, too. So right now, listeners of our show can get their first two months of Clear for free. Go to clearme.com slash accidental tech and use code accidental tech. That's clearme, C-L-E-A-R-M-E dot slash accidental tech. Code accidental tech for your free two months of Clear. Thank you so much to Clear for sponsoring our show.
0: overcast has come out with a really freaking cool new feature and i'd like to lodge a complaint that hopefully we can rectify right now let's do it i was listening i was listening uh to under the radar which is an excellent podcast with marco and our our good friend uh dave smith and you kind of fluffed over all the technical aspects of how this feature works and we'll explain the feature momentarily but I am here for the technical explanation of how this feature works to the the degree that you are willing to share. Now, I should probably back up and explain what the hell I'm talking about. But I would like it to be on record that I am all about figuring out – or not figuring out, but hearing about how you did this. Because this sounds fascinating to me. But what am I talking about? So out of nowhere – and I did not know this was coming – I. Don't think John knew this was coming, and uh, you had said uh, you had said on maybe under the radar that only a couple of people did know it was coming. But all of a sudden, in the last couple of days, Marco and and his app Overcast have released this new clips feature, and the idea is, and Marco, if I'm uh, you know characterizing this unfairly, just feel free to cut me off. But the idea is, hey, you know, podcasts are not easy to share in the same way like a GIF or a, in some degree a YouTube video is. And Marco has, for years and years, had timestamp links where you can go to a the Overcast website, and it will open to a specific time in the podcast, which works great, except for all the big shows with dynamic ad insertion for all the reasons we already spoke about, et cetera, et cetera. Plus, it's still hard to know, like, am I supposed to be li- listening to the last 45 minutes of this episode, and I'm just starting in the middle, or am I supposed to listen to 15 seconds, or what? what's the deal here? And so... Marco, and perhaps you can discuss motivations in a second other than that, but it seemed like the idea was, hey, let's make it easy to share this stuff. And, you know, if they share it with Overcast's Clips feature, that's some, you know, kind of subliminal, that's not the right word for it, but kind of, you know, quiet marketing for Overcast. But then, because you're a good person you decided to optionally allow people to remove the overcast branding or add branding for Apple podcasts, or even some of your competitors, which I think is really tremendous. And I, and I hope I don't sound sarcastic because I really do mean that. I really think that this is the right way to do it. Not the easy way, not both in the literal sense of the word, word but also in the like, should I really be promoting my competitors kind of thing? Uh, But I think this is the right way to do it. And you're a good man, Charlie Brown. And, I used this feature for the first time a couple hours ago and I loved it. I really want to know even if it's privately how you did all this because <laughs> I am neck deep in doing things that are considerably less complex and considerably less advanced. And so the the thought of trying to implement this just makes me, you know, googly-eyed. But one way or another, before we dive in, if we even do dive into implementation, uh, I, I just wanted to, first of all, publicly say I love this feature. I think it's great. I think you did it right by everyone, including um, including listeners, including competitors, including podcasters. I really think this is a home run, um, but if you would like to revise anything I said or add any clarity, please feel free.
2: No, you're you're just saying how awesome I am. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> leave it at that.
1: I have to say how awesome it is first too before Marco goes. I'll I'll allow it. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> like, like the one of the parts that Casey might have left off, which I think is the most important part of this entire feature. Actually, before I get into that, I'll I'm, I'm, uh, briefly touch on the uh, the links at the bottom where like uh, you could link to competitors and stuff like that. I feel like there's a little bit of uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend going on here because Marco does not link to Luminary.
0: <laughs> in those, in well, those links,
1: honestly, like so, so like the. I mean, I honestly, I don't
2: care about Luminary. Luminary is not a threat to me. Spotify is a threat to all of us, but I don't know how to link to Spotify when what I have is an iTunes ID. Every app that I link to there has a way that I that I can generate a URL knowing the iTunes ID of the podcast. I don't know how to do that for some other services like Spotify. And so I don't do that. If Spotify had some way that I could say like, you know, spotify.com slash podcast slash iTunes one, two, three, four, five. And I, I, and I know that anybody I sent there would get redirected to whatever
1: Spotify's giant garbage URL was, would be for that podcast. I would add them. Really? I always thought you were mostly linking to open, to actual real podcast apps as in they, they read RSS feeds. There, there's two sides of this. Like, I, I do want to only
2: support open-based podcast apps if I can, but also I want the share page to be so useful that big publishers will be tempted to use it. And if big publishers, you know, have a lot of their audience on Spotify, they're not going to even consider using a page that, like a, you know, a share page that has a bunch of other apps but not Spotify. Now that being said, this might be a, a moot concern because big publishers would probably never use these at all anyway. They're probably going to use only their own stuff because that's how this how they usually work. So like this might be you know a moot argument, but uh, ideally I would like that I would like those pages to be
1: as like broad appeal on the client side as possible. Alright, well getting getting back to my original point that I think is the most important feature of this and which may not have been clear in all of our descriptions. When you activate this feature uh, what you get in the end that you can stick in your tweet or wherever the hell is a video, which is like you're sharing podcasts. If I'm sharing podcasts, why the hell do I get a video at the end of it? It's not its not a video medium. It's audio. And Overcast already had audio share links, granted, without an ending timestamp, but Marco could have added an ending timestamp or a duration very easily as another query parameter or something, but he didn't. Why is this feature video? The fact that it's video is, I think, the most important and most attractive thing about this feature for a couple of reasons. One, there's the obvious one of like, when it makes the video, the content of the actual video includes like essentially the brand of the podcast, the the album art or whatever the hell you want to call it it, of the podcast, Uh, which is important for branding and recognition to know instead of just uh, following an Overcast timestamp link. And I mean, you'd go to overcast.com and you'd see the thing or whatever, but like it's, yeah, so there is a presentational detail there. But I think the most important reason is that people want something to look at uh and it seems weird because it's like well it, isn't it all just about being in the headphones and just listening to the thing or whatever just and the only thing that happens on it is like there's a progress bar that progresses just being able to see a progress bar and to see how much longer there is in a clip and the visually to see the album art while you listen people like to look at videos and like I don't, I don't know if this was a conscious like if you went through this whole thought process or decided this was important about it but i think it is Essential. I think part of the reason people share these is because all the social sharing services are optimized for sharing video. You can play it right in the thing. You don't get sent elsewhere. You don't get sent to a website. All social media sharing type things have to be good at sharing video because all the GIFs get turned into video and all the little, you know, when Vine was popular, that was out there. And just like it's part of social media, part of good use of social media is to embed tiny videos. So even if you're sharing podcasts, if you do it as embedding tiny videos, that is the, the the native lingua franca of the entire social networking world. And in practice, I think people love it because it's video. I like it because it's video. I find myself watching the little video of the thing, which has a tiny little progress bar that goes from left to right, while I sort of see the album art out of my peripheral vision. It is a very simple feature, but I think it is the genius part of this feature that if you were just thinking about how to do this, in a straightforward way, you would have found a way to share audio and then you would have found out how bad tiny audio clips are handled by most social media networks. I mean, that is the entire feature. The entire feature is generating video
2: for social network sharing. Like, that is the whole point. Because, and like, you know, I, I basically wrote the feature for Instagram. Like, that's everything else has been like, oh, it's nice to also do these other things. But like, the very first layout I made was the portrait layout for Instagram stories. The reason why the videos are... 16 by nine or nine by 16 or square is because those are the exact dimensions of what, what Instagram is, is optimized for. Um, I even looked up like, you know, one, some of the first questions I had were like, what is the, what is the ideal resolution that you can submit to Instagram for a video? Um, like, you know, the, the pixel resolution and stuff. And, and by the way, there's no information about most of this out there. <laughs> um, and there's things like, you know, with Instagram stories, um, there are it, it overlays certain controls in certain parts of the video so that's why i don't have anything in the very top or very bottom of an instagram story video um, so anyway yeah this this was built for social networks because the fact is like you know you, you said earlier like audio is the format of podcasts but video is the format of sharing and so if you want to share things socially it needs to be a photo or a video uh, anything that like if you try to put something that doesn't have those, it's very easy for people to skim over. And I think there's also, you know, like I think you mentioned this. But I think there's also a uh, an appeal of like when you are playing one of these clips, there is something for your eyes to do. So like if it was suppose the Twitter app or the Instagram app were really optimized for playing audio, they're not. But suppose they were. If you do that, you hit play, you keep scrolling, and you keep scrolling, you're reading things with your eyes and the linguistic parsing parts of your brain. And so you stop listening to what's being said if it's a talk rate, if it's a talk segment of of the audio. You need something visual to lock your eyes in place to give them something to do so that you pay attention instead of continuing to scroll through a visual format feed.
1: Otherwise you wouldn't hear what's being said. It wouldn't be very effective. And if you've ever seen a kid tap a YouTube video. Uh, while it was playing, you're like, why Why are they tapping the screen? They're, the video is playing. It's everything's fine. You know why they're tapping it? To find out how long this video is. Mm. By seeing, oh. by seeing mm-hmm. a progress bar, you know how far <laughs> along in the clip are you? What am I signing up for? If I just hit play and it starts playing, I'm like, is this going to be like 20 minutes of, of audio that I have to listen to? Am I expected to listen to 10 minutes? How long is this thing? There's a progress bar right there and you can see very quickly... Uh, and also you get to this in a second that the actual maximum limit means that you're not going to be there for 20 minutes no matter what which means that when the progress part starts to move you'll see oh this is going at a pretty good clip here huh uh it, it's going to be over pretty soon i'm about halfway through you know how close you're getting to the end uh the second cool feature is that if in twitterific anyway uh, and some other video players when a large video starts to play this this looks for all the world like like a player animation in like overcast or, or podcast app it has a progress bar let's say if like me you briefly forget that this is a video playing and you think it's a uh a player app where you can just grab the uh, the scrubber like the little you know playhead in the progress bar and drag it to to fast forward to like three quarters of the way through lots of video playing apps have a thing where, when the video is playing, if you swipe your finger across the screen, it acts as sort of a virtual progress bar. Really, so you can actually grab the little thumb in the video,
0: <laughs>
1: and I didn't move know that. Your, move your thumb like you're moving the progress bar, and it doesn't match one to one, but it will basically do what you mean. <laughs> it's, it's like you've made a <laughs> fake that's interactive video that tricks you
0: into thinking it's <laughs>
1: interactive, but it is not interactive. It is just a video, and all you're doing is scrubbing. It's uh, it's unintentional genius great. (laughs) I'll take it.
0: (laughs) So we've kind of talked about what it is, the motivation. Uh, Again, I love this so much to the extent you're willing to, can you pull back the curtain and tell us kind of, how the at the very least how did it go on a qualitative sense like was this pretty easy sailing or were you fighting this every step of the way and then uh, i am happy to go as deep as you want into the actual implementation i have a feeling that's not going to be very far but yeah um but but ha- how how
1: oh can i can i make a guess of the implementation yeah go for it uh i know nothing about this this is just a wild ass <laughs> guess right um because if there's some easy API for doing it, I assume Casey wouldn't even be asking. So,
0: Well, yes and no. I mean, I, I have a relatively okay idea of a lot of the surface area of the iOS API, but there's a lot, particularly in media, I don't know. And either way, I've only been doing this for real for a couple of years, whereas for Marco, it's been, what, 10-plus? So there is a lot I don't know. So I appreciate the compliment, but uh, it's possible that it's easier than I thought. That being said, uh, I bet you it's not as easy as I thought. So,
1: so I have two guesses, the easy one and the hard one. The easy one is, if this any of this is true, I'm pretty sure iOS has a screen recording API. And if you can get an off-screen view and stick the, the, the existing screen recording API at your off-screen view, you just go through the view and have the screen recording thing recorded, right? but that might require it to be real-time. I don't know. So that would be the one where, like, I didn't really really have to do any work because iOS already knows how to record the screen, and I just have it record an off-screen screen, screen and I just render the screen, and that would work out. The hard one is, uh, you know, it is... A video is just a series of pictures. You can render a view that is in the state that you want, and the only thing that changes is the progress bar. So you can render a series of frames as individual states of views and capture the view as an image, and then surely there's some video API that says, hey, I've got 700 images, each of which is a frame of video. Construct a video out of these frames. That would be the hard way. And I imagine that would be very painful and take a really long time. But it could be done given the constraints of what we see. Probably neither one of those are right, but those are the two things that immediately sprung to mind. Both of those would have been
2: too slow. What, the way this is, so what I wanted to do, I wanted something, first of all, that I could render using UIKit Style thing, so I could use like my fonts and my my text rendering, and like have the artwork render with the shadow and the rounded corners and everything. Basically, using like the the tools I use to render the interface, I wanted to also render the video. I also critically wanted you to be able to preview it immediately upon generating the trimmed re- region for the uh, audio. So. When you trim the audio, you you put it, it pushes when you say next or preview or whatever it pushes you to the preview screen and you can hit play and it renders it in real time it, like it's, it plays it in real time. There's it, it doesn't have to render it to a video first, and the reason why is because what you're playing is not a video. What you're playing is a core animation uh, stack basically. The all of it is rendered using core animation, and that makes it so you can scrub through it with that scrubber on the bottom and. When you hit the the save thing in the corner uh, to bring up the share sheet, that's when it encodes all that to a video. And I also I wanted to make sure also I wanted the preview to be exactly right. I did. I wanted exactly what you see in the preview to be what's rendered to the video. So I didn't want it. I didn't want the video to be using a different kind of technology that would like maybe have like different text rendering or different you know anti aliasing on edges or something like that. I wanted it to be exact. So I wanted instant previewing using core animation UI kit and stuff like that. And, and having the video look identical. And there is a way to do this. I can tell you it's, I'm using AV export, uh, AV asset export session. Oh God, these names are so long for all these APIs. Um, So the, the preview video is not, it's not UI views. It's CA layers. The rendering is a, AV asset export session that somewhere buried deep in the API you can set something called an animation tool. And the animation tool is this weird API that lets you basically overlay onto a video a core animation composition. Huh. And and there's all and the thing is like with with this API like everything about AV foundation is incredibly powerful incredibly poorly documented (laughs) and has the worst error reporting of anything I've ever used.
0: I have heard this many times and not just from you.
2: The only documentation you'll find, you know, the headers are basically useless. The official documentation is basically useless. The only documentation that's any good is like Stack Overflow and blog posts usually which are very old uh, and sometimes, sometimes out of date. And because not a lot of people are doing this kind of stuff there really isn't that much help on Stack Overflow and places like that. Like like there's some help, but it's not not a lot. And sometimes you will find other people asking like, hey, I got, you know, error negative 319 when I did this. What does that mean? And it'll have responses, but there'll all just be other people saying, I got it too, I don't know. <laughs> and occasionally somebody will be like, well, I rewrote the entire thing and it fixed it. <laughs> so it's like, okay, Hooray! right? Um, and so there's all, you've run into all sorts of weird errors and failures my favorite failure astute users might have noticed that occasionally the progress circle during the export restarts
1: at zero have you have you guys caught this happening no i haven't yeah someone someone complained that it was taking like two progress bars and i guess it was just the same progress bar attempt number 2 yes it isn't it isn't uncommon i'd say it happens maybe at 1 out of 5 times what
2: happens is during the av asset export of the video as it's rendering the video which I have very little visibility into, but I do have a progress value. You know, it's like 0.5, 0.6, whatever. During the export, sometimes, for reasons I have not been able to figure out and that are not reported to me at all, progress just stops. And it just, it will never finish. Like, when it gets to that state, when progress stops of an AV asset export session, it just never resumes. I have no idea why this happens. I found no documentation about it. I have, you know, found nobody reporting this elsewhere. And there's no error reported when it happens. It just stops. One time, I I, I tried like I I, I paused in the, in the debugger, and I basically you know I I canceled it and restarted it manually. Basically, I kicked it, <laughs> and that time it worked. And I kept developing it, and then you know, the next time I noticed that happened in one of my test runs, I kicked it again, and it worked the second time. And I eventually realized that. If it stopped working and I just kicked it, it would usually work the second try. So my solution to this problem was I filed a bug with Apple. Just kidding. You? No, I didn't. Because that would have taken a lot of time and not solved the problem. Because how do you file a bug on this? (laughs) Instead, I built an automatic kicking machine. Every time it detects that it has stopped for more than a few seconds, it automatically
1: kicks it. And it usually fixes it. (laughs) 50% Fifty percent of the time, it works. One hundred percent of the time. <laughs> right? So uh, this is the equivalent of this is the equivalent of when you added that delay for the resume after Siri, like the yeah. time delay. This is exactly the same type of terrible solution to a problem. We're just like, uh, it, it, just try again. It. It'll probably work the second time. Yeah,
2: but but this is how you have to ship things in iOS. Like, because yeah. you know what? The reality is, I could have filed a bug, and it would have taken five times longer. It would have gone back and forth with, uh, "Can you provide a test project?" Not really. You know, can't, can't, I can't even provide reliable re- reproduction steps. <laughs> it, it happens sometimes, and this usually fixes it. Like that's a terrible bug report, and so and and it's not like they're going to fix it immediately. They might fix it this fall, but even like it's May, they're like whatever is locked in for like the the WBDC release of these OSs is locked in. They're not doing bug fixes for unimportant stuff now. So I, I could either wait for apple to fix this bug before i ship this because the feature was unshippable with this because you know if it if one out of five exports just fails that kind of sucks like you can't really ship that i could have waited seven months for apple to maybe fix this feature <laughs> or i could build the automatic kicking machine and that worked within 10 minutes <laughs> so that's the solution i shipped and i would love to not eat it anymore i would love you know i'm still trying to figure out what caused this i'm trying a few things for the next version that maybe might avoid it uh but i still haven't quite nailed it down so that's that's how that, that if, you, if you ever see the uh the progress circle
1: restart itself from zero you know what happened does it how many times will it retry as many as it takes <laughs> so you could, in theory be there and watch that progress bar go start and then restart and then restart and you'll just never leave until it succeeds the most i've ever seen is twice this is gonna be a new contest who can get the most restarts
2: (laughs) and if anybody if anybody can can reliably like have reproduction steps of like what makes it do that because i still can't figure it out so let me know
0: this is this is a killer feature i love that you're linking to all these other um all all these other competing apps have you gotten feedback from like the castro folks which i know you're you're relatively close with the castro folks but like (laughs)
1: feedback is they're all copying this feature now
0: well, but I mean, that's
1: reasonable. <laughs> They're all building their own automated kicking machines. <laughs> yeah, <right.
0: laughs> no, but seriously, like, were they pleased with it? But, uh, or, or or you know, how was the, the reception? Not necessarily from Castro. I shouldn't single them out. I just know that you talked to those guys a fair bit. But like, in, in a broad sense, did you speak to anyone about this after it released? And were they pleased? Were they kind of like, whoa, kind of whatever?
1: Seems positive. Good. Yeah, no, no one seemed to have a problem with it. Yeah, and we're all saying we like this feature or whatever, but the, the real proof is that if you go on Twitter right now, at least in the, the circles of our followers, uh, lots of people are using this feature to share clips from podcasts, which is exactly the whole point of the feature. Now, maybe it's just a fad and people will stop, but honestly, I think we're just going to continue to see more and more of this, at least among Overcast users. And when every other podcast client copies this feature, then we'll see it more in general, which is good because I have I have listened to more uh short clips of podcasts since you've introduced this feature than like the entire three years before that combined like they're (laughs) everywhere um and that that brings up another one of my questions like you you limited this to was it one minute maximum length yes how did you come up with that number i wanted to have a limit for lots of reasons you know there's
2: um fair use concerns uh attention span concerns with people like if you post a ten minute video on Twitter, no one's going to sit there and watch all ten minutes of it. You know, it's you know, it's it's just not the mode people are in. To like, the progress bar is not that exciting, <laughs> <laughs> right? Exactly. And there were you know technical concerns also, like that that long of a video would take a lot longer to encode, and that would just be tedious. Um, and so th- there were there were a number of concerns with like that. But the, the, you know, the, the what made me choose one minute specifically is because that is the limit of how long a video can be on Instagram might as well like i wanted to have a low limit anyway might as well match that one
1: yeah my feature request is the minimum length should be shorter because i wanted to post a clip of someone snorting on a podcast but the snort was not short enough what is the minimum length one second two second i actually don't know it,
2: it has to do with the width of the grab handles uh for the trimming thing because I, I have the, i have logic for the grab handles never to overlap each other or cross each other like and this is currently why you also can't Trim a podcast from zero zero, like from the very beginning of it. You can't actually clip that. You have to like clip like one second in. That's not a content decision that's a
1: implementation detail that i'm hoping to fix in the next version <laughs> yeah i guess yeah, the handles are like c-shaped and not just like flappies the the little the little branches on the c must be pretty long because it's a it's a big gap but yeah i would i would love to be able well, they, to, to clip it. the handle. handle the handle actually has a rectangular
2: grab area that is about five times wider than the visual handle hmm. like it's like two and a half times on each side roughly it's it's some it's about i think 50 pixels wide total is the act is the total grab area um, and and right now those grab areas can't overlap. So the closest you can put the handles together is something like a hundred pixels apart. Yeah, it's, so
1: something like that. That could be tighter. That could be better. And if you if you really want to go nuts, which you probably don't, but it'd be good practice for your future audio editing application. One of the features that I always <laughs> love, I would always love to have in whether it's audio or video, but particular audio, when you're trying to do fine adjustments on a trim like i have more or less got the beginning and the end where i want them but i want to do fine adjustments being able to no longer touch the primary controls for touching the trim ends but to have a separate set of controls for the fine adjustments whatever those may be right either whether it's like a tiny bump thing or whatever because you usually especially with sort of quantized data you can know there's a minimum step that's reasonable to take for trimming mm-hmm. right and you could so you could even have it be a digital thing to be you know bump it left 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 right 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 lots of you know like, uh photoshop type applications or you know mac paint or whatever had a way to like nudge the selection by single pixels at a time with the arrow keys and stuff like that something like that where you get it pretty close and then use a separate control with with less less pressure because especially on a touch screen trying to move your thumb one retina pixel to try to get like a little bit it's just it's very difficult to do and there's no real zooming on that timeline and i know it's not an audio editor it's just for trimming or whatever but um if you want to go whole hog, when you're trying to make just that perfectly trimmed clip, which you should be, because a lot of people are getting pretty sloppy, especially with the end where they're cut it off in the middle of someone's <laughs> word or something, that's no good. You want it, you want it to sort of begin and end exactly where you want it to. Fine controls would be great.
2: That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, if you if you use voiceover, you can go plus or minus one second. That's how I made it accessible. But oh, second not, is
1: huge. I'm talking about like one know, sample.
2: <laughs> well, that's yeah. I, I mean, one thing I could do is, which would be technically a pain in the butt but one thing i could do is like if you hold down on one of the drag handles maybe it would zoom in like the whole time yeah, it that's zoom what saying
1: audio editor features you can do all sorts of fancy things or like when you when you move the trim handles you constantly rescale to like uh, readjust the scale to say now that you've you've moved the drag handles now that is 100 percent and constant but but i think like that's that's too much probably just uh, you know just being able to do gross adjustment and then fine adjustment iMovie annoys me because as far as I'm aware, iMovie is what I use for all my YouTube videos. It doesn't seem to have a great fine adjustment feature. Luckily on a 27-inch screen, you make things pretty huge and set the zoom to max and and get it in where you want it. But I always, I'm like, just don't make me, even with a mouse, like don't make me try to move any control on the screen a single retina pixel or a single regular or a single (laughs) point. Like... This, give me a second set, like mechanically speaking, there's always like a second set of controls with like a different uh, sort of gear ratio or mechanical advantage ratio where you can move huge gross movements that move the actual thing you want to move a tiny amount. Well, it's funny, like, like as I was developing the clip editor there,
2: um, I had to decide like, what is the scale? Like what's the zoom level? And I could make a dynamic, but that would, again, a lot more work. I didn't, I didn't really want to tackle that yet. Um, so, you know, what's the zoom level of that? And Overcast is a portrait app and this is a horizontal timeline. being So it's like you only have the short side of the phone as the width of what you're dealing with here. As I was developing it, I actually slowly zoomed out from like I would think that I had a certain time scale that was right. And then as I would try to make clips with it, I'd be scrolling, scroll, 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 scroll trying to find like where I wanted the end. It was too many swipes to get like a, like a 45 second long clip. And so I slowly zoomed out and out and out. And I basically solved the problem of imprecision by just adding crossfades to the beginning and end. So there's a very brief, I think it's about like 0.2 seconds crossfade uh, on the audio, like f- fade in at the beginning, fade out at the end, uh, because that way you can be a little bit sloppy and you don't hear like a, 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 an abrupt transition.
1: Yeah, you need that so you don't get the little pops anyway.
2: Right, yeah. I mean, I, I could do like, you know, a zero crossing thing, but that's that's just, that's you know, more trouble than it's worth. And I don't I don't know that Passing that level of precision to core media is is a great idea to rely on.
1: Yeah, these these are all details. Like it, this, it totally passes the, the the basic test, which is people are using it to share clips, and the clips are good and enjoyable, and people hear them and under, they understand what the person was trying to clip, and they're funny, and it's it's working. The system is working.
2: Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> please, everyone, share whatever you want, and uh, like I don't want this feature to just like have a week of use and then die. And it's the kind of thing like. If you are seeing these clips on a regular basis, you will then think when you come across a funny moment, oh I can I can post a clip of that. But if you never see any of these clips, you might never even go to this
1: menu like you might not even you might never even know this feature is there. Yeah, I would not have known it's there. I never go to the share thing. why would I ever even tap that button but I uh, only know about it because I saw the feature on Twitter.
2: Right and it's a kind of like and you know I could I could like put up a balloon or something in the app but I don't, I don't I hate doing that I don't do that. So like ideally this is the kind of feature that people see around and then they go oh I can do that with Overcast too. Cool, and then they would go and
1: look for it, and they should. I, I assume they'd be able to find it pretty easily. Yeah, I think that's probably the biggest problem is I don't think people will. Be able to, I mean, the, the nerdy people will know to use the share icon or whatever, but it for a feature this good, it should be so much more prominent in the application. And I know now is not the time to totally redesign your your UI to highlight this one feature, but I think people will have a little bit of difficulty finding it.
2: Yeah, I, I, I'll play with
1: it, and, and you know, certainly like. When I design the next
2: version of the now playing screen, uh, I would I will certainly consider like do I want to
1: promote this further? Yeah, did you this? What do you call this? We've been calling it clips, but isn't that the name of like Apple's app for like making Instagram story things? You don't have like a, a trademark name. It's not like uh, no. I just call it share clip. Smart clip. <laughs> smart. Clip. <laughs> Insta <laughs> clip. I don't know.
0: <laughs> oh, there we go.
1: Insta smart clip.
0: Oh my word! All right, so the feature. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Took getting it trying to get in all one. the Marco name slams in one segment. <laughs> <laughs> Took me a minute. Oh yeah, yeah. So I would ask you, you know how how the the new uh, AirPlay two stuff is going, but I already know what you're going to be doing starting next month, and you're going to be using marzipan to make overcast for the mac oh wait never mind steve trotton smith already did it
1: (laughs) if you exclude the ability to play audio but that's a minor feature yeah
0: (laughs) minor minor issue yeah so tell me about your side of the story and i mean i mean that in a good way i hope that didn't sound nasty but you know like what what, what's going on here uh
2: yeah so basically steve trotton smith has been playing with uh the the marzipan environment on mojave for i don't know six months now for a while And he wrote a couple blog posts and has made some tools, one called Marzipanify, um, that basically allow you to take a simulator build, which is therefore an Intel build, of an iOS app, and if you're willing to disable system integrity protection and and some other thing about, um, I think like some kind of uh, certificate validation on a Mac, and you run this tool on a simulator build, you can make it run in Marzipan on Mojave. And so those are two giant ifs, That like, if you're willing to do this, <laughs> that I'm not willing to do. Uh, but he is, <laughs> and, and he wrote the tool. And, and he knows a lot more about getting this stuff to run than I do. And so I've been meaning for a while to, like, send him a simulator build of overcast. to like, hey, can you just see if this runs and see what happens? Like, let me know if I need to do anything. And, uh, and so I finally got around to doing that. Um, uh, what is it, a couple days ago now? And we worked through... There were a few frameworks that i had to if def out the use of things like um the uh, media toolbox things for doing things like putting the playback controls and title information in control center like that api is not there in mojave marzipan and so i had to just like if def that out for this build Um, and then there were a couple other like small things i had to if def out that just weren't present Um, things like uh, the mail compose sheet so there's a lot of frameworks that aren't there. There's a lot of frameworks that just don't make sense on the Mac. Things like that control center framework and CarPlay, like those frameworks were missing on the Mac probably for good because that just doesn't make sense. So, But like, you know, my app would launch and try to load them and it would crash. And so we went back and forth. I think, I think six builds later after I had to add <laughs> to add a few more things, I think he got it running and that was it. And it was great. And, and it, you know, it didn't take a lot really like, which was promising. Partly I I kind of I kind of won here in part because I am such a jerk and don't ever use anyone else's code in my app. Like I have my app contains almost entirely my code and the little bits of it that aren't mine are very simple open source things that I can look at the source for. Anything that I can that I need to change, I can change. And I and it isn't loading a whole bunch of crap, to, you know, to get there. And so I was uh, I was able to fairly easily give him a version of the app that would have run in in Mojave under the uh, marzipan thing when it's hacked in this way. Um, so I was very happy about that, and it's really cool. And, you know, it isn't Mac-like at all, uh, but that's because, like, he's written blog posts about, like, they have APIs that you can generate to uh, do things like add toolbars, like add Mac toolbars, add Mac split views, add, you know, menu bar stuff, Apple script stuff, touch bar integration. Like, the, the, the basics of all this stuff are all there, but he doesn't have my source code, so he couldn't add those things. And I don't, I don't want to take the time to do it yet, because I assume all that stuff is going to be more mature and maybe different in a month when the official tools presumably come out. So anyway, I'm really excited about the possibility of making this a Mac app. And I'm really happy that it mostly works as is. Like, it's not going to require massive changes. One change it probably is going to require, though, is AirPlay 2. And that's, as you mentioned, it, it works in the sense that the UI works. Uh, it does not, however, play audio, <laughs> which, for a podcast <laughs> app, is not great.
1: Already established, Overcast is all about video now. Well, that feature works fine. <laughs> you can watch the progress bar move from left to right in silence. No, no the the audio
2: in the clip preview editor that works because that doesn't use my audio stack. The audio playback in the preview editor for clips uh, is just using AV Player. That works fine under Marzipan Mojave. But my core audio-based audio engine does not. And and actually, I I sent him my AirPlay 2 test harness app, which is like a very basic app that's running my very alpha AirPlay 2 engine, just to see, like, does this play audio? And it did. So that that is moving up my my priority of, like, I should probably switch to this sooner rather than later. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm going to finish that soon, I think. Uh, That's probably going to be the next major thing I tackle.
0: Well, no, I I don't think we need really need to spend much more time on this. I just think it's extremely cool. And you had made mention of this kind of offhandedly a moment ago, but he did not have source code access. And Correct. even when he decided to make himself a three-column version of the app, that was without <laughs> source code access, which is just, I, I, if you follow Steve John Smith, th- this sh- won't surprise you and shouldn't have surprised me, and yet I found it somewhat surprising that he could go in there and swizzle the snot out of your app in order to get, a three-column version out of thin air, which is just yeah. incredible. When
1: Marco's doing the actual uh, Marzipan version of Overcast, writing source code like a chump,
0: <laughs> I know right. Going
1: to be thinking of Steve Trouton Smith who added a third column just by shifting selectors around. Or whatever the hell he's doing in there?
2: Yeah, in like an hour too. Like it, it took him like no time. Like because I, I actually I do want to go to a three-pane layout on iPads and Macs because uh, it, it makes total sense. Like you know I have I already have three-level navigation. It makes complete sense. Like you know, the, the leftmost pane would be the root screen. It'd be like you know, playlist, podcasts, and then you know, the middle pane would be the currently selected playlist or podcast, and the right pane would be now playing. Like that makes uh, that's of course what I'm going to do, and I think modern iPads are now wide enough that I can do it there too. Uh, so that's great. So I, I, I intend to do that. But like for me to do, it's going to take me like a week to get all that worked out. Like even <laughs> with my current structure, and he did it in like an hour with no code.
0: It is utterly preposterous. It really, really is. But that's why we love him
2: we are sponsored this week by hover go to hover.com slash ATP to get 10% off your first purchase who doesn't need a domain name nowadays it feels like everyone has one so it's important that yours stands out Hover is a wonderful registrar and they make it super easy to find the right name. They have over 400 domain extensions to choose from to help you brand yourself online. So one that's getting a lot of traction lately is me me is a unique domain extension to use for your portfolio to showcase who you are and what you do. So if you have a portfolio website ready to go, go get a me name at hover with the me extension it really shows off who you are and your work. So, also, Hover's just a really great domain name registrar. I have a lot of my names there, and I keep buying more there because it's just so nice and easy to be one of their customers. They have great tools, great, you know, easy-to-use interface. They have incredible support. If you ever need any kind of support, they have support that you wish everyone's support was that good. All the tools are there. All the design is there. It's very respectful of you. It doesn't try to, like, scam you. They include things for free that should be free, like Free Who is Privacy. There's no tricks or upsells or scammy add-ons. It's just wonderful being a Hover customer. And I highly suggest you check them out for your domain name needs. You can do this at hover.com/atp. You can learn more there and you can get 10% off your first purchase. Once again, hover.com/atp to learn more and get 10% off your first purchase. Hover. Get a domain name for whatever you're passionate about.
0: Uh, there was an article in the New York Times where they said there used to be lots of apps that would allow parents to control slash restrict uh, or at least have visibility into, if nothing else, what their children are doing on on their phones. And a lot of these apps were using MDM, which is mobile device management. Is that right? I think so. Which, um, which is a tool that Apple really developed in order for corporations to control their assets. So if your company issues you an iPhone, then you could use MDM in order to maintain that iPhone and make sure that only the right apps are being used and that you knew where the iPhone was physically on the planet and so on and so forth. But a lot of these companies that were doing the, the kind of stalker vision for your kids so you could see exactly what they're doing, where they are, and so on and so forth, were using MDM. And Apple whether or not they did a good job of explaining, it seems to have come to the opinion that using MDM for some, if not all of these things, isn't really what it's meant for. And there's some amount of debate how they message this to these companies. But one way or another, they told the companies, hey, you're either not going to be able to do this anymore, and thus your company will maybe go away, or you really need to rethink the mechanism by which you're doing this which may also make your company go away, but we're not cool with the way this works right now. And so this New York Times piece, which I really didn't care for, was basically a bunch of kvetching and moaning from these companies uh, about why Apple is is big and unfair and terrible. And there are a lot of reasons why Apple can be big and unfair and terrible, but this one, this didn't strike me as that unreasonable and and the response from apple was basically look it's a privacy thing and this isn't how it was supposed to be used and we're not comfortable with this so we're not going to allow it anymore
1: well i think apple did make a bunch of mistakes here but first of all we can start with this new york times article which sort of uh kicked this off uh the angle in the article the the sort of sensational angle and the the story put forward by the software developers affected by this is like, well, isn't it convenient? Apple comes out with its own screen time feature for dealing with restrictions on, uh, you know, family members or children's phones and stuff. And all of a sudden it doesn't want to let us, the, the third party developers who have been offering the same functionality doesn't want to let us sell our applications anymore. Isn't it nefarious and evil? Uh, Apple, once Apple enters the market, they want to kick everybody else out. Um, and then Apple had like this PR thing that was partially quoted in the New York Times article saying that, uh, you know, Apple treats, uh, a- uh, third party applications the same as it treats its own, yada, yada, which is not true in any way. And is like the worst thing, that, the worst <laughs> thing that Apple could have, you know, the one, the quote they could have pulled is the one that, you know, those in the know, know it's not actually true, but that's not the issue. The, the whole point is the angle it was kind of like Apple is doing this because they're mean slash evil and have their own interests at heart. Um, but the, here are the mistakes that i feel like apple made in in this and some of them are understandable and nobody's perfect but like there's there are mistakes that made the situation more fraught than it needed to be the first one i feel like is letting third-party developers distribute parental control applications using mdm right because mdm yeah the case you described it well it's like for companies who let their employees have iphones who want to control what those employees put on their iphones and want to be able to remote wipe them and stop people from using applications and like any kind of thing where if you're in a big company and they give you computer hardware to use, they have some degree of terrible, evil control over it because that's how it works. Like, it's the company's phone. It's not your phone. It's the company's laptop. It's not your laptop. You're just using it. Um, and MDM gives the company control over your laptop. The, the MDM scenario for parental controls, like... The reason they use them is because it is literally the only way without jailbreaking to provide this functionality on iOS devices. Uh, but in in this scenario, in the company scenario, the company is I don't know what the, I don't know the right terminology for this. So the company is the is the thing that sort of is controlling the MDM thing, and the employee has the phone, right? There, and there's just two parties: it's the company and, and the employee. Well, actually, I suppose there's the vendor of the of the thing that uses MDM, but either way, when a parent buys this application and uses it to control their children's phone. And I may be wrong about this, but my impression is that, yes, the parent has the ability to control the, control the child's phone, but also the vendor of the MDM application effectively has some control in this chain as well because they are the creators of the application. I may be wrong about that. But, no, that's correct. That they, they have full control. Yeah. So it, so it's, like, it's a three-party scenario instead of two. And that third party is one that, that a parent downloading this application might not realize is in the mix here a company surely knows that it is the one controlling the thing yada yada like but the parent might think i'm just controlling my kid's phone but the company that makes this software doesn't have any untoward access to my kid's phone and they do it's just not the right tool for the job and it's on apple that they allowed this entire ecosystem of applications to flourish now i can kind of understand where apple's coming from they're like well There is no other way to do this, and this is functionality people want, and we don't have a solution for it. So why shouldn't we let third parties do this? So while we work on screen time or while we figure out what we're going to do, let's just allow these third-party applications to go on this to go with MDM. In hindsight, that was a mistake because eventually when Apple comes out with a similar feature, and this is the kernel of truth in in the story in the New York Times, when Apple comes out with a similar feature, they'd be like, all right, well, finally, we have screen time. Now we can get rid of all of those applications that use MDM and say, please stop doing that because it's really not great. And it's, it's putting parents in a situation where they might not realize, but they're providing third parties with access to their phones that is not great. And, like, it's, and I know you're a good company, but really, this is not what MDM is for. MDM is for you know, companies and their employees, so on. It's not for parents and their kids, so on. It's for, for the parental situation, use screen time, uh, so on and so forth. That is a bad situation, though, because there remains no other way to provide this functionality in a third-party app, this extent of this functionality in a third-party app, than using MDM. So if Apple says, "Uh, please, company that's been in business for a long time and has lots of customers, stop using MDM in your app. And it's like, well, you're basically telling us to stop selling our app, because there is no other way for us to do what we do on our app without using MDM. So... And how did Apple get into the situation? They allowed these developers to sell their apps using MDM for a long time and be successful. And now they're saying you have to stop. Uh, basically, it's, it's a product-killing decision. They, they, uh, you know, and the third mistake is, when Apple has to communicate this, Like I don't, I don't know the right way to communicate this because it's a hard conversation to have to call up a developer and say, yeah, I know you've been selling this application for a long time and are very successful with it, but basically you need to stop selling it because we're not going to let you use MDM anymore. And there's no other way for you to provide this functionality. So basically your product is dead. Sorry about that. Our bad. Uh, And by the way, and by the way, we have a screen time. Sorry. Yeah. Screen time is available, but it's not as full featured as your application, but it's built into the U S and we control it. And you know, like that, that is effectively what is happening to a lot of these, uh, people who make products like this, but, I mean, there's no good way to communicate that. It's You're going to be sad either way, but perhaps one of the worst ways to communicate that is the passive or aggressive app store rejection way, which is basically to just send terse responses that say something very sort of clinical that, you know, your use of API blah, blah, blah is disallowed. Please remove the use of this application and resubmit. Something like that that doesn't, like... It just seems like it was from a machine that says MDM is not allowed. doesn't acknowledge that it was allowed before. It doesn't tell you that Apple understands what this means for your application, right? And this is, this is true of all the App Store frustrations. You'll do a thing in an app for years and years that Apple thinks is fine. Then you'll do a bug fix update, and they'll reject your application for a feature that's been there for a year. And with a thing that says, this application does X, please remove X and resubmit. With no acknowledgement, like, but I've been doing X for years. You've approved 100 versions that do X. communicate to me as a human to tell me what's going on you're just like mechanical rejections right maybe that's the the quote-unquote right way to communicate from a legal perspective because it opens you up to less liability because it doesn't make you but it's it's not the human way to communicate that and again maybe there's no right way maybe the wrong approach would try to be human because if you're if you do that you're opening yourself up to legal liability or who knows i don't i don't know what goes into the thinking behind this and it's a difficult conversation to have but the difficult conversation stems from earlier decisions that were Apple's decisions to make that I think they made the wrong call on. So they allowed these stores, these things to be in the store for a long time. Then when it came time to essentially kill a bunch of products, it seems like, at least in the few cases of people complaining, it was communicated in the most terse and sort of impersonal way possible. And it just makes everybody feel bad, right? So there is is fault to go around here. But in the end, Apple is, I, I think Apple is doing the right thing. MDM shouldn't be, isn't the right tool for parents to do that. And there is no other better API. And yes, I understand these apps are potentially better and more full featured than screen time. And I know it looks like Apple is killing these things with screen time, but they kind of are. And that's just part of software. Like if you implement, if you are a third party that implements a feature that rightfully should be part of the OS, don't be surprised when eventually it does become part of the OS and in the app store era or in the not the app store, era, but in the, in the sort of the privacy focused security focused era of today, don't be surprised also that not only does it get built into the OS, but that you are no longer allowed to use whatever weird side door you were using before because this is a security concern. So I, I feel bad for these companies, and uh, I, I also kind of feel bad for Apple, but there's a little bit of uh, enough blame to go around. What I don't believe is that this is some nefarious you know, scheme to say, ha-ha, finally we'll destroy all those companies with our... <laughs> amazing screen time that we bundle for free with our OS? It's <laughs> right. not... This is not a, a, a massive money making scheme. This is part of Apple's security focus. Uh, and it stems from uh, an earlier mistake, an earlier mistake, by the way, where Apple was being, if you want to look at it, more magnanimous than they should be, of basically saying, we don't have a solution to this. Why shouldn't we let third parties use MDM? The answer is because someday you're going to have to stop them and then everyone's going to be sad. But they made a bunch of money in the meantime that they wouldn't have made if Apple had said, you know what? We don't have the ability to provide this functionality, and we're not going to let third parties provide it with MDM ever. And so we'll just all have to wait for iOS 12 or whatever screen time came in. So tough situation, but uh, Apple is not being uh, unnecessarily evil. They're all just uh, reaping what they sow from past mistakes.
0: I feel like this is an extension of what we went through a few months ago, or maybe even less than that, with the apps that allowed you to sideload stuff. So there was like, you know, getting... Oh, getting using the uh, enterprise. enterprise certificates, you mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I feel like the enterprise cert thing was far worse. It was both more nefarious on, on the vendor, so not Apple, but the, these other people. It was it was pretty clearly nefarious on their part, and clearly, pretty clearly... Not in the spirit of what enterprise certs are for. This I do think is more gray, but I don't think it's that dissimilar in ideas. That hey, you're taking a technology that we really want to use for A, B, and C, and you're using it for. I was going to say X, Y, Z, but maybe that's a bit aggressive. But you're using it for I don't know L and M, and that's not good. And this analogy is really (laughs) falling apart. But anyway, the (laughs) point is, (laughs) the point is that it's using this MDM technology in a way that it's really not meant for. In in just like John said, like if you get burned for that, well, whose fault is that really?
2: Yeah, I I mostly agree with John and a little bit from Casey, except I think that I would be surprised if the development of screen time. Had anything at all to do with this? I think it's purely coincidental that it happened to be developed during this because Apple has been cracking down on things like enterprise distribution uh, abuse, uh, things like VPN apps that maybe shouldn't be like that are using VPNs to do things that are not really what VPNs are for, uh, apps that are you know using using profiles like MDM to do things like this has been a crackdown that's been going on for like a year or something like that. Like it's it's been like over over a while. And I think one thing that became apparent—I think we've seen signs of this here and there—but I think one thing that became apparent uh, during the enterprise certificate uh, kerfuffle from a few months back is that it doesn't seem like Apple has a great idea at like decision-making levels of power how some of this stuff is being abused. Like it just—it kind of seems like the App Store is so big and the ecosystem is so big that sometimes stuff gets through and. You don't have a super powerful person in the company making like a, a policy decision on every one of these things because it's just too big to keep up with. I get the feeling, like I think, what happens is at some point something is brought to the attention of the higher ups, whether it's through the press or through you know internal channels, whatever it is, and then decisions can be made and then they're executed, for, you know, down below again at the lower levels of the company where more people are. That's kind of the impression I get, and so whenever there's like an app store policy change, I think it's something like that where like somebody in the press or somewhere like calls out, Hey, these apps are doing this thing. You know, why are they allowed to do that? And then someone who matters notices and they say, Hey, that's wrong. They shouldn't be allowed to do that. And they go tell app review, Hey, get rid of these things or, you know, enforce this policy or change this policy. That's what I think happens. And it's a big company. It's a really big company. The lower level people are probably not empowered to be incredibly communicative and verbose with the outside world. So when you know, if the lower level people get a directive like, "Hey, this app is doing this thing that we actually don't want to permit," all they can probably tell the developer is, "You are being rejected for Rule Two Point Four Point Whatever." You know, it's like they can only give those robotic responses, probably because of that's you know policy and as John said, maybe legal concerns and everything. But what we see from the outside when this happens, is you have an app in the store, <laughs> like, if you're a developer, you have an app in the store, it's fine, because it gets updated, it goes through app review every couple of weeks when you change something, and it's fine. Until it's not. And all you're getting from Apple is, the, is this kind of, like, stonewall response of either no reason given, or a very robotic, minimal reason given that's not really helpful, and not really explaining like, why was this okay last month, and now it's not. Um, so it makes sense on both sides. Like, I can totally see. I can understand why Apple's side of it is the way it is, but the developer side of it, like what we see on the outside in this kind of situation, is terrible. And you might occasionally, like it, maybe if you're lucky, like when 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 you're on this side of, of a rule change or, or reinterpretation, if you're lucky, after a while you might get a phone call, which I, I've always termed the Agent Smith phone calls. <laughs> because you get a phone call from like the apple main switchboard number so you can't call them back you are not given a name usually if ever you are given the bad news from this person who usually the conversation is usually quite civil but they will they will then tell you like the reason basically during those phone calls but of course because it's a phone call you don't have a solid record of it really you can't really quote them very easily because it's a phone call you get this random phone call from apple that's like a nice but terse person telling you really what you can't do and then that's it and you have no way to ever reach them again and i actually i heard a rumor uh, a while back that all of those phone calls were made by this one guy who was like the nicest guy in the world but was also ex-military and just had like There was an article about that i think oh really yeah i think there was like, yeah i heard he, I he, he just this. he just had like you know like the like willpower of stone and he could just make these calls and get through them with people like Probably giving him all sorts of crap on the other on the other end. Like he could just get through him, and apparently he was super nice. And apparently he he stopped doing that job like last year or something like that. Anyway, I don't know if that's true, but I thought that was kind of funny that like, it's like this one super nice guy doing all this. Anyway, you know, Apple has this problem of like they change a policy, something was allowed, now they don't want to allow it anymore. That's going to be uncomfortable, as John said. Developers have this problem of Apple changes something right from under us. And we're getting terrible to no communication on it, and we seem to seem to be powerless. Both sides of it suck. I think the the solution here, you know, it's never going to be problem free, but Apple has to get way better at the communication when this kind of thing happens. They are just horrendous at it. I think their motivations here were fine. Like I, I don't I don't think they were badly motivated again i don't i don't think this had anything to do with screen time at all agreed i don't think anybody at apple at at like decision making high up levels knew about these apps using mdm for this purpose a year ago
1: and said we're gonna wait till we launch screen time and then kick them out like i seriously doubt that i think that's plausible and i'll tell you why um The only reason Apple made screen time is because they think it's a feature that users want, that there is something that people want to do with their phones that are not currently able to do. We should make a feature that does that. It's not like they frivolously add features to iOS, like it's filling a user need. And whoever was on the team to to fulfill this need to say, let's make let's add this feature to iOS. uh, You have to figure out, okay what uh, what should this feature do? uh what what you know what what features should it have what functionality should it have surely you look at the space and you say well are there any other applications out there that already do something similar in your exploration of the space that's when you discover hey there's 75 applications that do this with millions of downloads and they all use mdm to do it at that point i feel like you now have the knowledge maybe it's still, it's a high enough level of the company, like, well, oh, we, it's a big company. That's two different divisions. Right. And I'm saying those people have the knowledge that there's a bunch of apps out there that are, that are using MDM. And I feel like at that high enough level team coming up with a feature that's, that's on the slate for potentially being added to iOS 12 or whatever at that level, I feel like that that's enough to disseminate the information to the to the, the 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 company at large at the very top. And I think at that point you have the discussion as like, well, we're exploring this feature. We looked at the space. We think we're gonna we think we're gonna add. You know, these are the bullet points we're gonna have. These are the you know the the benefits and the you know functionality we're gonna have. Um, and also. Uh, We we also think probably that, uh, you know, that these apps are using MDM shouldn't do it. But let's not kill those apps yet. Let's wait until we get screen time out the door. Because the next consideration is that our users are, you know, this need that we think our users have, they're currently getting it filled by third parties. So let them continue to have the third party apps until we have some semblance of a replacement, then deliver the bad news. I'm not saying this is what happened. I'm saying it's a plausible scenario where Apple, what Apple's trying to do is, provide a feature to its users in the safest way possible, and also not screw all of its users. Remember, it's like what Apple uh, users, developers, the three-level hierarchy of Apple's priorities, right? (laughs) Right, There's way more users than developers. So the calculus has to be not like, oh, let's let's sneakily wait until screen time's out and screw the developers. It's let's not screw our millions of users because our millions of users want this functionality. So until we deliver screen time, let's just not do anything to that thing, but put it on the agenda for some point after screen time ships, to eventually get those mdm apps out of there like i think that is a plausible scenario because i think there's no way apple implemented this feature without looking at what what exists in the space at a high enough level that the company might know and again those are i'm describing basically kind motivations to everything involved that apple is looking at trying to find features that are useful to its users that's thinking of its users who are using the third-party apps and then in third place unfortunately are the developers who it's probably not thinking of that much but again the user priority wins we don't want a parent Putting an app on their kid's phone that unwittingly gives control to a to the third party developer without the parent understanding exactly what they've just given away. When I first read the story, uh,
2: I pretty much immediately sided with Apple in my head with with the the decision side of it. Like you know, the communication side I think was was not great, but the decision side of it, it makes total sense to me because like as an iOS developer, I didn't even know these apps existed, and if somebody would have asked me. Hey, I have an idea for an app. It's a parental control app that limits how many, you know, how long you can run apps on your phone. Uh, can I make this? I would have said no. It's not possible. Any iOS developer would know. Like, there is no way for apps on your phone to look around in your phone and see what other apps are running or to have any control over that. Like, most developers would assume that's not possible. And if somebody would, if somebody in like in the back of the room would raise their hand and be like, "Hey, what if we install an MDM profile?" on every user's device and it, and we use that to control these, any experienced iOS developer would be like, well, they're never going to allow that. Like, that's, that's definitely going to be against app store policy. Like I, I think it's, it's like developer it's, it's experienced iOS developer common sense that this kind of thing would probably not be allowed because that is clearly not what MDM is for. Similar thing with VPNs. Like there's a lot of apps that were using vpns to do certain things and apple cracked down on them over like the last year or so as well because that's a similar kind of tool where it's like it, you're you're taking this tool that is intended for a a relatively specific type of use and if you make a a vpn like like onavo like facebook's onavo thing that has pretty horrible privacy implications that most of its users are probably not really going to be aware of and maybe are installing for other reasons uh, you know, a VPN is is not a great tool to use for that job or to be permitted to be used that way, uh, because that's not really what it's for. And most most users don't realize all the power it gives the other party and things like that. And so, like for the same reasons that MDM profiles are, I think, common sense not like not allowed to be used in ways like this. VPNs also, developer common sense are you know shouldn't be allowed to be doing this kind of stuff. And and I think Apple's policy on both of those things has been slowly tightening but not outside of the realm of common sense like clearly they are responding to the problems that we've seen over the app store like in recent years of like wow this large-scale thing is using this api in a way that we think is creepy you know see also enterprise certificate abuse stuff like that apple's finding ways that that are that are being abused like this and they're closing those loopholes and i don't think that's the wrong decision the only failures are that the loopholes were allowed to be exploited in the first place and that they, and the policy change was so badly communicated almost every time. We are sponsored this week by Eero. Finally, Wi-Fi that works. The single router model just doesn't work for our increasingly high bandwidth world. What you need is a distributed Wi-Fi system. This is what offices have had for years, but theirs took a lot of work and a lot of cost. Eero gives you an enterprise-grade Wi-Fi system in your home that's super easy to use in just a few minutes. Simply download the Eero app on your iOS or Android device, and it walks you through each step of the process. It is the fastest and easiest setup ...of any router I've ever seen. I've used a lot of routers before, and i set up a couple of Euros now, and it is really pleasant to set up. It's super easy. Anybody can do it. And it has great hardware, great encryption, everything else you need. And they also now offer Eero Plus. This is an optional subscription that's designed to provide simple, reliable security... ...that defends all your home's devices against a growing number of threats... ...including malware, spyware, phishing attacks, and unsuitable content. The combination of Eero with Eero Plus provides complete protection for your network and all the devices on it. So this includes total network protection. You can block malicious and unwanted content across your entire network, advanced security to block millions of known threats. Content blocking, if you want to block sites that contain violent, illegal, or adult content, you can choose which devices on your network can and can't see them. So for instance, you can control what your kids can and can't see. Uh, You can also have ad blocking network-wide on all of your devices to improve load times for ad-heavy sites. And there's so much more with Eero Plus. You can see for yourself at Eero.com slash ATP. And you can get $100 off the Eero base unit and two beacons package with one year of Eero Plus. So once again, Eero.com slash ATP, Eero.com slash ATP. And at checkout, enter code ATP. And you can get $100 off a package that has the Eero base unit, two beacons, and one year of Eero Plus. Thank you so much to Eero for sponsoring our show.
0: All right, let's do some Ask ATP, starting with Keegan Sands, who writes, What naming convention do you use for directories and files on your Mac? Camel case, hy- hyphen delimiter, underscore delimiter, et cetera. Uh, underscores are good for many things. Uh, I'd just like to put that out there. Uh, for me, I, uh, I generally just use, like, the Windows 95. Oh, my God, I can put spaces and capitals and whatever <laughs> I want in my file name. I will do that, thank you very much. And so... That's what I do. I use spaces. I don't have any particularly strong feelings about Camel or Pascal case or anything else. I name things in the most appropriate way I see possible because that's what the file system enables me to do. Uh, I'm going to assume that Marco is slightly more particular than me. So let me ask you first.
2: Um, anything that's like like me, like, like user-facing I just use spaces and proper capitalization, <laughs> and it's fine. Exactly. Um, I I will use all lowercase, no spaces, using hyphens between words for things like developer directories. So things like my my git checkouts uh, of like I have like you know overcast web, and that's all lowercase. That's that's the git checkout. For it. So it's so like in the in the paths that will be used by developer stuff, there's no spaces, just because just in case something weird happens, I don't want to deal with it, right? So, um, and just for some reason, and like I do the same thing on my servers, like the servers all have like lowercase with dashes um, as as the delimiters and just, you know, because it's just easier on Linux to do things that way. Um, but yeah, anything like documents for myself that are just like in my home documents directory or anything that, or stuff on my desktop, that's all just with spaces and capital letters and stuff, it's fine.
0: Yeah, uh, I think shell scripts are another good example of like all lowercase and hyphens. Um, yep, me too. Yep so that so there are occasions that that all be more particular but not usually all right john we only have but so much time, but please tell me your rules for files, file file naming on your file system.
1: Well, more than since more than a decade before Windows 95, I was naming all my files in insane ways because that's what you can do on a Mac. And by the way, <laughs> I was naming them whatever I wanted to name them, literally whatever I wanted to name them. There was no part of the file name that I was required to put any sort of secret code in there that the operating system would then interpret and try to take action based on. I could literally What about name the colon? I could literally name my files whatever I wanted. No, that—that's a forbidden character. But there was no part that, if you wrote it, the operating system would look at that part of the file name and interpret it in a weird-ass way that can break things. Oh, okay.
0: No you are so i've never met a human being that is more angry about extensions than you are so angry forever anyway uh and it, <laughs> and and how did i
1: choose how did i actually choose to name them It was mostly title case like you know my obsession with title case it was mostly title case um you don't say yeah because they were like the titles of folders and, and applications were named in, essentially in title case since the beginning of the mac so that's the way you know everything's named that way uh that said you know so the mac uh now has unix to uh great taste to tastes great together uh I do sort of code <laughs> switching uh, to pull or to, to code switch slightly here. Code switching uh, when I'm doing work, uh, if I am working, let's say, in a programming language that itself has some kind of strong cultural convention for what you name your source files or what you name your directories, or sometimes a mandated convention like Perl, where the package name corresponds to a directory path that has to exactly match the package name and the language has an informal convention for how packages should be named i totally use those conventions right sometimes it's hard to tell like if you asked a random person in the street what is nodes uh, naming convention for uh, javascript files some person might say uh, hyphen separating words all lowercase some person might say underscores in the end it doesn't really matter that much and it's a cultural thing but certainly no one would say that the convention for uh, node.js is to generally do title case with spaces between words that's not The convention you can do it, but it's not the convention. So I do code switch. Um, My personal preference, if I I don't think I'm going to say, in the absence of any other overriding cultural concern for a programming language or environment, what would I choose? But there is no context like that. Like every in every context, whether it's shell or Perl or C or whatever, there's some kind of cultural surrounding influence to suggest how you might consider naming your files. And I generally just tend to stick with whatever the dominant culture is within thing which means that on my mac there are a bunch of files and folders and everything that look you know that are named the way i want them to be named especially with the extensions hidden um, but then there are a whole directory trees that are in the sort of culture and parlance of whatever programming language or environment they're in
0: patrick writes with apple willing to spend big money on controlling important pieces of tech why are they paying so much for aws instead of making their own cloud it's an interesting question but I, I don't think Apple has any interest in managing something that like their their cloud stuff. I, I just I mean, they have that huge data center in North Carolina, which is used for something. Uh, but by and large, I just don't think that them doing doing an AWS clone or an AWS alike really, how does that help the user? Because AWS seems, by and large, to be pretty good at what it does. I don't know, John. Why am I being wrong? Why am I wrong about
1: this? This used to be a much less interesting question. If you would ask the same question a couple of decades ago, it would be like, well, duh, like. There are things that Apple does that are part of its core company, core competency, and value proposition. And there are things that it asks another company to do. Right? It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't decide to run its own construction company to build its buildings. I, you know, in the current Apple, every example I can think of is like actually a much more plausible than you might think. But let's say decades ago, like it doesn't. <laughs> you know. It, it, like there are certain First things johnny ive builds the bulldozer yeah they're <laughs> not like reinvents concrete <laughs> right like it doesn't it doesn't make the machines that make its computers like it doesn't you know it doesn't uh make the bulldozers that mine for the chemicals that go into it's like that's not what the core competency of the company is it's like what is wh- what should we put our effort and money behind um uh, outsource things that are not part of your value proposition to a company that does them exclusively and does them better uh that's that's the way you do things um and practically speaking, both decades ago and today, I'm going to say everybody uses AWS, but the public cloud writ large is extremely popular. Uh, if you don't work for a company that does things online, perhaps you don't realize how much of all the cool products you use are powered by AWS or to a lesser extent, Azure or Google Cloud. Uh, the companies don't advertise that fact, uh, but that's how the world works today and it works that way like why does netflix use aws why don't they run all their own data centers netflix's core competency is these days making original content and doing content deals and delivering you uh video it is not writing cloud infrastructure to run servers and stuff right that is not you know like that's that's not where they want to be spending their money and that's that's sort of the the current business model but today with apple today it's a more difficult question because there are very few companies that should be trying to run their own cloud but arguably apple might be one of them that should at least be considering it amazon runs its own cloud it's called aws google runs its own cloud microsoft runs its own cloud apple is kind of in that camp and services are a big part of apple things and yada 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 you could still make a very strong argument that apple should absolutely not be running its own cloud and they should outsource this but Some of its competitors actually do derive advantage from running their own clouds. Google certainly does. Their entire business was founded on the fact that they would run their own data centers and design their own hardware and do their own machines and do a lot of stuff. And it gives them an advantage, both in terms of cost and innovation and lots, lots of other areas. Amazon has an advantage because, you know, they, they, Built AWS is kind of this weird side business. Now it is a huge business because, as I said, every other freaking company in the world is using the public cloud to run their businesses on, and that's a pretty darn good business. Look at like Bezos's like yearly report or whatever. AWS is a good business. It's nice to have, a, you know. It's maybe it's not an iPhone size business, but it's a big business, and it's nice to have that. And by the way, there's synergy between that business and what Amazon does, and all that other stuff. Apple, a lot of those same things are true. It would gain both a cost and innovative, innovation advantage to running its own cloud. It, If they decided to ever sell their services like Google and Microsoft and Amazon do, that could be a big business. But on the other hand, it's also a crowded market, and Apple has not traditionally been particularly good at this. But on the other, other hand, maybe they should be good at it. So <laughs> it is a way more complicated question today than it used to be. It used to be the answer was simple. N- nobody should run their own cloud. It's stupid. Today the answer is nobody should run their own cloud except maybe apple might think about it (laughs) like there's like five (laughs) companies in the world that should run their own cloud and apple might be one of them so i think this is an interesting question i don't think it's a really good answer i mean i think it's it's even simpler than that i mean this is a this is a
2: role that is easily outsourced because it is it is separate from like it's easy to separate this rollout of like dumb server stuff or dumb online services like it's easy to outsource that to aws or various companies like aws and it's hard for apple to build that up to a large scale reasonably quickly like apple's cloud needs and and back end needs have grown a ton over the last decade Apple itself seems to have a lot of trouble multitasking as a company in general. They, have, they seem to have a lot of trouble scaling their company, scaling their headcount in particular. Uh, they just seem like they're, they don't do that very quickly or very easily. And when they try, it seems like they have trouble. This seems like an easy thing to like take this big, boring, highly commoditized role and have someone else do it for us. Because not only can, can we then not build all that out ourselves and save some headcount and save some complexity there, it's also possible that Amazon can do it cheaper than we can.
1: Mm, that's not you, so, spoken like someone who hasn't paid a big AWS bill lately. <laughs> I mean, they, they certainly can do it cheaper, but it won't be cheaper to you because they they charge a profit margin on those things. The they do, but it's it's a highly commoditized market that's very competitive
2: and easily switched between providers if you're using it right. It's not so as like,
1: commoditized as you would think it is. Like, there's... It, it, it really depends. Like, I see what... Like, you're making the argument for the old Apple, but I think what you're really saying is Apple's so late to the market that it's too late for them to be competitive, but... Well, both. I, like, I'm saying that... They are pretty late to this market, especially as you mentioned.
2: Like, this is not historically an area where they've been incredibly competent uh, or cared very strongly to become competent. Uh, so, like, this is something that. They don't really value much as a company, uh, you know. The whole thing of like, you know, like the, I think the, the Tim Cook doctrine of like we want to do things that we can add value to. They can't add value to data center but, but, stuff, but they could. Like,
1: like if they did what Google did, Google and Amazon both add value to that. But they add value to their own businesses and they add value in terms of they sell it to other people. Like it's a good business and like what Google does, how they can make their data. If Google paid for AWS. It would cost them so much money. And by the way, they'd also be paying a potential competitor, right? Google does their own stuff uh, because they're Google, and they do it really, really well for their own purposes. Google Cloud is, is a good example. Google Cloud is the best example why Apple shouldn't do it. Google has their public cloud service, and even though I think Google has best-in-class, best-in-the-entire-world data center management and systems for their own stuff, like the Google search engine and all that other stuff, they are behind Amazon in terms of selling that to the public because they came in too late. And if Google's having trouble catching AWS, what chance does Apple have? Right. But that's kind of the pessimistic taste. And and on the other hand, Apple uh, was considering making a car. So like we live in a strange world. (laughs) Yeah. Good point. (laughs) Yeah. I think, I think honestly, I think Apple should have already been in on the public cloud and many, many years ago, but they haven't. So maybe it is too late, but I, I think it is not, it's not entirely slam dunk. And Depending on how this shakes out long-term, Apple may seriously regret not getting into the space because I can tell you that there's a lot of money to be made selling these services to other people. Uh, AWS bills really add up. And no matter who you go to, who's Apple going to go to their public cloud? They're not going to run their own. They're either going to pay Microsoft, Google, or Amazon. That's not a great situation to be in, and they're going to pay them a lot of money. That's not, if they're going to be a big, that's not a good situation to be in for Apple. Like you don't want to be. It's kind of like Google paying Apple billions of dollars to be the default search on iOS. It's, you really don't want to be giving that much money to your competitors, especially when they know they kind of have you over a barrel. Because what are you going to do? Move all your crap from AWS into Azure? It's not. It's not an easy lift.
0: All right. This next piece of Ask ATP has been lingering in our document for probably two or three months. And we keep just putting it off, putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. But sometime forever ago, Paul Wood III wrote, Hey, you know, John Roderick has—and Merlin, I guess, is what he was intending— have discussed their top 10 sports cars on, on Roderick on the Line. Can we get that list on ATP and hear from Marco and Casey as well? Oh, did you did you discuss this with Roderick, John? Yeah, when he was, was? on
1: uh, REC Diffs a while back, I think we talked about it.
0: Ah, uh, okay, right, right. So anyway, so I put this in the show notes, and then uh, apparently John has added a tweet wherein this was already decided in 2016. So would you like to tell me about that, John?
1: Yeah, I think that's when I had uh, Roderick on Reconcilable Differences with me, and we discussed this, and I think I tweeted about it my list hasn't changed that much. I, I start, this is the list I put in the tweet and it's tweet link. So you can't go into super detail, but there are nuances to it. Um, and it was like top 10. I don't think I came up to 10, but my list is basically, uh, uh, I'll, I'll describe it. And then we can fill in the, fill in the variables later. Like, Whatever the current uh, mid-engine uh, Ferrari uh, V8 sports car is, like whatever the, the latest model, that's usually on my list. So in this, at the time, it was a 488, but now it's the, what the hell is the thing called? Oh, Tributo, F8 Tributo, or something like that. Anyway, whatever that one is, the current one, that one keeps changing. Then the Ferrari 458, because it's the last uh, naturally aspirated uh, iteration of that model line. BMW M3, but I mean the M3 that was around in like the – I always forget. Is the E46 is the one that I like. The one that was around that was new in like 95, 96. I think it's – That's E36. No, I think it's the
0: E46 is the one I like. No, E46 was early 2000s. Well,
1: I like the whatever the one is that has the little like uh, slats by the by the
0: M3 badge. I don't know which one you're talking about. Are you talking about Rich Siegel's M3 because that's an, that's an E46? If you're talking about a little boxier than that, it's E36. Yeah, it's Rich Siegel's, E46. That's early 2000s.
1: Yeah, that's the M3 that I'm talking about. Mercedes S600, which I didn't put a year on that, but it varies from years. Sometimes I like them, I don't like them. But what I'm basically saying is the big V12, ridiculously huge Mercedes sedan that's like driving a living room. That one. I had Tesla Model <laughs> S on here in 2016, but honestly, I think I would remove that now because I'm really down on Tesla and I'm just angry and scared of the company. Uh, And then, of course, McLaren F1, because
0: why not? Mm -hmm. All right. For me, I thought the—well, I have to explain pretty much all of these. Uh, The C3 Corvette, which is like the mid to late 70s-ish— Uh, which by most standards is one of the worst, if not the worst Corvette of all time. However, my dad had a 77 vet for a long time when I was growing up, which I probably told that story about 15 times on this show and on neutral. But the C3 Corvette, I would love to have one of those. Um, The Z32, uh, so this is the Nissan 300ZX uh, from the early 1990s. I had a 91 non-turbo many, many years ago. I love that car. I don't regret selling that car, but I regret selling that car. Uh, an Aston Martin DBS of pretty much any vintage, uh, something modern, that I should say, but be that brand new or five years old or 10 years old, whatever, I'd be fine with it. Uh, Lamborghini Diablo, uh, I don't care what specific flavor of the Diablo, but that was my ultimate car when I was really coming of age, when I was a little kid. And uh, and I love that thing, and I would even though I'm sure I would hate to drive it, I would still love to have one. E39 M5 because it's been one of my favorite cars of all time, pretty much since the moment I laid eyes on it. Uh, I echo your, you know, V8 mid-engine Ferrari, so like the 488 or what have you. I echo your McLaren F1, and I'd also I would love to you know have a Bugatti Veyron just because I think it would be a cool thing to have. As puke. <laughs> oh come on, so ugly. It's, 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 so oh, no, i'm not saying it's i'm not saying it's pretty i'm yeah, it just looks saying pretty cool in person Ugh. It, i don't think i've ever seen one in person but i do not like that car uh, no, i i just feel like it's the we spared no expense version of the automobile and i and i kind of respect well
1: that they they spared no pound that's for sure well they spared yeah, no fly. expense brutal
0: uh all right marco hit me
2: all right you're gonna hate my list Oh, of course
0: it's um, so, gonna have
1: an mr2 on it
2: let's <laughs> go one, one of the entries i begin with
1: quote ferrari whatever mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> awesome. i don't know enough about ferraris to say which one you should get a ferrari california for that's your punishment for putting that on the list oh god
2: yeah because i i know i should i should want them because they're like the driver enthusiast car
1: but i don't know anything about them so i figured i'd let john pick my ferrari yeah um C- current mid-engine actually i i would just I, I would i would just wait or i would get the 458 those are your two choices
2: okay whatever you said that um i also <laughs> thought uh in the like I, I like my large fast electric cars like i like that and so i have model s model 3 the porsche take or what, is that the mission wait, wait why
1: are you putting model 3 on the list why would you want you have a model s why would you want a model 3 which is just the worst model s i needed 10 Oh, okay. No, you didn't. Oh, I didn't. I didn't have get 10. To 10 I just listed yeah. No, good. Yeah. No, don't right. worry about don't, that. Don't, don't get worry that get that right Model of that.
2: 3 off. All right. So, Model S, <laughs> Porsche <laughs> Taycan, and uh, the M5. I thought like, you, you know, I had one, it was great, and I, I I haven't tried the new one yet. The new one's really good, they say. Right. And so that would be certainly on the list to consider. I like large stands. Um in the uh smaller category, uh I'm very curious about the new Tesla Roadster. Not enough to buy one, but it looks pretty cool. Also, Aston Martin, whatever you know, Casey can tell me which Aston Martin to get, and uh, <laughs> and then also, um, I'm not. I've never been in one. I'm not. I'm not sure that I would actually enjoy it. But I find the BMW i8 very attractive in person. Uh, I think it looks striking and really in person.
0: Uh, I would agree with that. The other thing, and I've said this in other places, I think, but the other car that I think is does not photograph terribly well, but I think is gorgeous in person. Person is the Audi R8. I uh, think yeah I'll agree. Do, I do not like the look of those on paper, but I think they are very pretty. They look better
1: in person than they do in photos, but it is not to my taste. I can't handle the two-tone panel on the side. It's just yeah, eh, it's I can, it I can definitely that. it
2: allows for some pretty ugly color combos. They they aren't all ugly, and even when it's
1: not, there's there's a texture difference there that bothers me.
2: Uh, and then finally, um, in the uh, small, fast, like kind of enthusiast category. Uh, I have the Porsche Cayman, which I've also never been in, uh, but I've heard they're wonderful to drive, and they're mid-engine, which they I've are. never driven, uh, yep. and so I'm I'm curious about that. Um, the only downside with the Cayman is that you're basically sitting on the ground, from what I can tell, and so my final pick uh, is the BMW M2. I thought you
1: were going to pick a Jeep Wrangler.
0: no
2: No, because like the the m2 like it seems very similar to the 1m that i had and that was a really fun car and what i what i especially liked about the 1m is that it was a small fast sporty car but that you were sitting at regular sedan height not like sitting on the ground and the m2 appears to basically be like the next version of that and so I'm, i'm very curious like to possibly try one of those ultimately though like i'm so converted to electric at this point what i really want bmw to make is an electric two series but they don't seem interested in doing that anytime soon well thanks to our sponsors this week hover eero and clear and we will see you next week
0: now the show is over they
2: didn't even mean to begin because it was accidental. accidental
1: oh it was accidental
0: accidental
1: john did search marco and casey wouldn't let him because it was accidental Accidental. it was accidental
0: Accidental.
1: and you can find the show notes at atp.fm and if you're into twitter you can follow them at
2: c-a-s-e-y-l ISS, so that's Casey List, M A R C O A R M. Anti Marco Armen, SIRAC, USA Syracuse, it's accidental,
0: accidental. They didn't mean to accidental, accidental. Tech podcast so long.
2: I was summoned to jury duty this week uh i recognize this is not a popular opinion i really hate jury duty i it makes me what some would call unreasonably angry i call it perfectly reasonable (laughs) um i really don't like jury duty and i recognize why we do it the way we do i think it's an incredibly broken imperfect system and not the right solution uh but that's just me and everyone else seems to care about it a lot more than i do so i'll just stop my complaining there Going to jury duty makes me very angry. I don't like going. I don't like being there. I especially don't like how much they spend all this time showing you videos and stuff that thank you for going because I don't think it's dignified to be thanked for something you were forced to attend. Uh, That seems insulting at best (laughs) Uh, to legally kidnap me, force me to be there, and then say thanks for coming. Uh, Anyway... Last time I, I served jury duty, I I never got to a trial. It just basically made me wait in a jury waiting room to be maybe called to a courtroom for a few days. Eventually, I, I believe I even talked about it on the show. Eventually, I was called up for a court into into a uh, a courtroom, and I was kicked out during Vardier because I said I didn't trust authority. Um, which is,
0: oh, I'd forgotten about that. Yes, yeah. yes, yes.
2: Yeah. Anyway. But the vast majority of the time was not even in a courtroom. It was sitting in a jury waiting room with other potential jurors with nothing to do. And these are federal courts that I get summoned to. This is the Southern District of New York Federal Court. And the federal courts are extremely strict that you cannot bring any kind of electronics into the courtroom. And so last – or into the building even. And so as I was sitting there last time in this jury waiting room, I had – nothing to do like i i had printed out articles to read and i brought like a magazine or two and i had just totally under provisioned for like how much <laughs> material i would need for the amount of time that i was going to be there was <laughs> a well, good thing you're such an avid reader of novels so you have plenty to fill your time right yeah exactly yeah like so anyway so last time i was dramatically underprepared and i was bored out of my mind and i was super mad which made it even worse so this time i wanted to do it right now as John mentioned, I think a normal person solution to this would be to bring a book. And this time I did. I brought the uh, Creativity, Inc. book that John recommended um, because I said, I'm going to bring a book this time, damn it. But I don't like reading books very much. So I wanted more options than that. So for my mental health, I wanted a way to have my two favorite things, music and podcasts. Now, you might assume as one would that I was out of luck because you aren't allowed to bring electronic devices to jury duty. And that makes sense in people's picture of jury duty, where they, they picture you immediately going to a courtroom and sitting and being paying attention and you wouldn't want jurors using their phones during a trial. And that's all true, but that isn't ha- what jury duty is. That's what, what jury duty really is. At least in this federal court, I keep being summoned to because it's random law uh, is that you go and sit in this room for a long time possibly for days without going to a courtroom so you're basically just sitting in a waiting room i see no harm in having electronics in that room so i decided to this time try to push the boundaries a little and see if i could bring uh, of course something that could play music and podcasts while i was in this waiting room waiting around to do nothing and ideally i was even thinking like it'd be nice if i could have an e-reader or something so i wouldn't have to carry around paper books i have a few ebooks i'd like to read i didn't own any paper books that i really wanted to read that i haven't yet so like i don't want to just buy a paper book just to bring here like if i have ebooks that i can read so i'd like to bring an e-reader if possible and something that can play mp3s and and maybe one device that could do both would be ideal i decided to be a lawyer about it like i looked at the exact wording of what the rule was the summons that you get in the mail it says and i quote Do not bring electronic equipment, including cell phones, Blackberries, PDAs, laptops, and the like, to the courthouse. So, of course, I mean, my first question is, like, what's the last time somebody tried to bring a BlackBerry or a PDA (laughs) to the courthouse? But, like, so it says, do not bring electronic equipment, including blah, 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 and the like. Electronic equipment is very broad. But there's a lot of it that is not like those things. Like, is a digital watch? Electronic equipment that's like PDAs, laptops, and Blackberries. No. What about a Fitbit? One question is: What about an e-reader? Is that like a cell phone, PDA, or laptop? Maybe, maybe not. So the good thing is that I I called that you have to like call the night before to listen to a recording to see if you actually have to go in that day. And the phone message had different wording. Oh God! It said no pocket knives, (laughs) cell phones,
1: Blackberries or Internet capable devices are allowed in the courthouse. Oh, they, that last one that killed. What I was going to say because you were mentioning digital watches, and there is a kind of watch that you can use to listen to both music and podcasts, but unfortunately, it is internet capable. Right. So I saw. I don't. I don't
2: have a pocket knife. That one's easy. You don't have a pocket knife? No, I'm not a knife person. Uh, no cell phones, Blackberries, or internet capable devices. Okay. Now this is much more specific. Internet capable. Okay. So nothing with cellular, obviously probably nothing with wi-fi either it's questionable what they mean by internet capable but you know let's say nothing with wi-fi either now there's also a separate rule that you aren't allowed to have image or sound recording devices in a courtroom so nothing with a camera or microphones so before i move on if you were in this position what if anything would you bring
0: the obvious answer is some sort of portable turntable duh
2: (laughs) (laughs) no
1: you could bring a five piece band (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> that's true. There's nothing about musical
1: instruments. Nobody <laughs> says you can't bring like a wedding band in with you and just entertain the entire waiting room. Can I bring like Mike and Jason to come like have a conversation in front of me about the Apple news of the week? Yeah, and then the podcasting—you just bring a bunch of people who will sit behind a table and talk. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Oh
0: my. Boy. Casey, what what would you bring? Uh, All kidding aside, I would certainly bring, like, a backpack full of magazines and novels and so on and so forth. Like, if I couldn't bring a Kindle, then I would bring a series of novels or something like that.
2: So e-reading was the first thing I tried to tackle. So an e-reader is probably the easiest thing to get away with. The problem is, no Kindle has ever been made that doesn't have either Wi-Fi, cellular, or both.
1: I was going to say, they are all internet-capable.
2: Yes. Now, the old Sony readers were neither of those things the old sony readers would pass this test uh but i believe i mailed mine to you john years ago as part of packing material with other kindles around it (laughs) i had one sony reader like forever ago and you can't really buy them quickly these days so i thought me you know a kindle would probably not pass the test but what matters isn't whether something has wi-fi but whether a courtroom security guard is likely to know that it has wi-fi so I figured I could actually probably get away with a Kindle. But what I really wanted, ideally, I figured like trying to carry a bunch of stuff in there was risky. I wanted to only try to get one thing past them that was a questionable electronic device. So I really wanted a Kindle with a headphone jack so I could also play music and podcasts from it. Now, the only problem is I gave all those to John, too. Like many Kindles have headphone jacks. <laughs> I don't own any of them right now. The only I've Right now, the only Kindle I own is a first generation Oasis. Not the current. The current one's the second generation. Um, And the first generation Oasis has no audio output at all. So if all it could do for me was the reading functions and just replace like a book, well, I could just bring a book. Like that's not that big of a deal. If if this device is only going to replace one book, it isn't worth the risk if it can't also be an audio player. Now I looked. The newest Kindles all support Bluetooth audio output. That could be great, except that they only support this for audible audiobooks bought in the audible app on the kindle so previous kindles back when they had headphone jacks you could sideload music onto its memory by just like plugging in through usb to your computer you could like put music in a folder and it could play it modern kindles can't do that anymore apparently and I i don't actually i didn't actually have one that could do this to test with but the information i could find basically said they will only play stuff from the audible app you can't load stuff on them anymore so i couldn't like load podcasts onto them so between that and, you know, the, my situation here, I figured e-readers were not going to work out. They have too little upside for too much risk. So I decided to stick with paper for my reading needs and only try to solve for music and podcasts electronically. The correct modern solution, as John alluded to a minute ago, would probably be an Apple Watch with AirPods. But the Apple Watch has Wi-Fi, some of them have cellular, and they all have microphones. And the Apple Watch is instantly recognizable to most people and most people know that Apple Watches are kind of like phones. And they have phone-like features. So I think any security guard, it would be a pretty high risk. Like, they're probably not going to let an Apple Watch through because they know an Apple Watch is like a phone. And, you know, Bluetooth, again, I wasn't sure if I could re- really rely on that. You know, it is, it's not usually used to provide an internet service, although it can be. It's also, you know, it is a wireless electronic communication method. And I figured, like, the guards probably wouldn't be willing to debate this with me? (laughs) You
0: know? No. So,
2: I actually, I I thought like, a little music player would be ideal. Uh, I actually have a little Sony music player that is otherwise perfect, except that it's very obviously an audio recorder. That's what it really is. It has these two giant microphones on the top and it has a giant red record button on the front. So, I figured that was too risky because you aren't allowed to record stuff so clearly... That was not a good idea. So what I needed really was an iPod. You know, something that looks old and basic enough that any security guard would recognize it as just a music player. And they would know this has no internet or phone capabilities whatsoever.
0: I was hoping you were going to say a Rio PMP 300 like I had way back in the day. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or nomad? Did you were you one of the nomad people? I don't remember. No, about I I briefly
2: had one of the ones that was a big hard drive, but it wasn't it wasn't the nomad brand. It was another brand. I forget the, I forget which one it was, but it was some other brand.
0: Well, it was uh, it was like Creative something something nomad. Is that right? You know what I'm thinking of, right? The one that looks like a yeah. yeah you're thinking
2: of the Creative nomad jukebox, which is which is the one that looks like a it looks like a fat disc man, and it had like a five gig hard drive in it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, no, yeah. I had one that was by a different company that had a hard drive, and then I had one that played MP3 CDRs, which is much better. Um, anyway, I decided ipod is the way to go here people recognize ipods they know what they look like they know what they are and they know and they know what they aren't and they know it's clearly just an ipod right so that's what i wanted problem is we don't have a working ipod whoops and most i yeah like tiff has her old ipod mini but it's i don't even think we have a 30 pin cable anymore like I, I don't think i could plug it in if i wanted to and i'm pretty sure the battery would be because most ipods that are still around today have batteries that are like 10 or 15 years old and so they can't hold a charge anymore and you can actually still today buy new iPods that are refurbished with new batteries. The problem is these are like $200 and up. Like the, an iPod Nano refurbished with a new battery is like $180 for most places.
0: A small price to pay. Well,
2: But they retailed for $150 when they were new. Like they, They're actually more than MSRP yeah. now. And an iPod Classic, they're even more. iPod Classics are like over $300 for like one in good shape that has a new battery. I also thought, though, like, looking at the iPod Nano availability, the seventh generation Nano, the, the latest one, is the one that looks like a tiny iPhone. Like, it has the home button and a big touchscreen. And so I figured the security guards might not let that one through because it was never very popular. Like, by the time that came out, iPhones were taken over. So, like, it wasn't very popular, and it looks like a small phone. So I figured there's actually a risk. So the one I really wanted was the fifth generation. That was the last one that had the iconic iPod Nano shape with, with the screen on top and the buttons in a circle below it. Like, that's the last one that looks like, a, you know, the iPod-shaped iPod, shaped iPod. It was the seventh generation iPod Nano. Or, the, sorry, the fifth generation iPod Nano. Problem is, those were, those were again, like $200 for a refurbished one with a new battery. And I also thought, like, am I going to spend $200 on something that the next time I need this thing, it's probably going to be when they call me back in another five years? And five years from now, will that battery still work? And more importantly, will I still be able to sync files to an iPod using iTunes in five years? Probably not.
1: Let's just all sit back and appreciate the fact that you are even considering making a one-time two hundred dollars purchase for a single day activity that may repeat every five years. Correct. Let's just appreciate that. I it, it felt rich to me. Like it felt <laughs> what it's like to be Marco.
2: <laughs> yeah. So uh, the, the, honestly the price really put me off. If if not for the if it was like $50, I would have done it, no question. 200 felt a little ridiculous for this purpose. But the good thing is I am not the first person to have ever wanted a cheap iPod. The iPod spawned a thousand clones and many of them are still around today and still being made, still brand new, and because it is 2019, they cost basically nothing. So I'll put in the show notes the one I chose. I bought the AGP Tech MP3 Player 8GB Bluetooth 4.0 Upgraded A02T Lossless Sport Music Player with FM Radio Voice Recorder Expandable up to 128 gigs, Black for kids and adult Voice Recorder! So I selected this one in part because it looked very similar to an iPod Nano. Also in part because I was ordering it on a saturday and it was guaranteed to arrive on sunday <laughs> and in part because it was 26 dollars. now i should clarify the price has since gone up to 29 but when i bought it it was 26 dollars. now john noticed a few problematic keywords <laughs> it does have bluetooth and it does include a little microphone to make voice recordings but neither of those things were visually apparent the microphone as far i, I, didn't, I didn't even test where it was but there's a small hole on the back of it i think that's the microphone It might not even be, it might just be like, it might just use a microphone that's on the earbuds if you happen to be using like a a TRS earbud set. Uh, So I don't know.
1: I never tried the voice recorder. I assume it was recording everything and transmitting it back to a data center in China the whole time you were there. So maybe. Uh, (laughs) So anyway, uh, that's what Bloomberg said anyway.
2: Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So because the voice recorder aspect of it was not visually apparent at all, and I wasn't even sure it even had a microphone, I figured that would probably not be a problem. So I loaded it up and, you know, there is no sync software to be had. You just, you plug it in and it's a USB device and you copy stuff over to folders on it. It's great. Um, I loaded it up with music. I I put some podcasts on it and uh, I wrapped an old wired pair of white Apple earbuds around it like it's 2005, you know, (laughs) and I brought it to the courthouse. Now, they were very, very clear in the instructions. Don't even bring your phone into the building. Just don't even bring it with you that day at all, or leave it in your car. So I left it locked in my gloves in my
1: glove box because I wasn't going to not bring it. Obviously, I, I got I to get there somehow. <laughs> don't, leave your, don't leave your phone in your car. That's not—I mean, you probably got away with it because you know whatever, and the Tesla is kind of climate control, but that's bad for your phone. Don't leave your phone in your car. Sorry. Uh, anyway, so I left it in the glove
2: box, locked up. <laughs> um, the first thing I had to do was figure out where to park. I had to, you know, go into like a big municipal city parking garage. And I had my phone until I parked, but then I had to leave my phone in the car. So the first thing I had to do was figure out how to pay for this parking. And there's signs up saying, remember your parking spot. My usual solution to this would be to take a picture of the parking spot. <laughs> <laughs> well, and if, if not that, I would at least usually take a picture of the sign by the elevator that told me what floor I was on and whether it's like east or north or whatever. And I couldn't do those things. So I had to like I like – my short-term memory for these things is gone like i the skill i have to remember parking spots is gone because i haven't used it in you know what 10 years so i i uh
1: took out a notebook and a pencil which i had to buy for the <laughs> this oh this gosh. is why you need the the mike hurley in your life you got a bunch of uh, expensive hipster notebooks and a million pens yeah well fortunately i have tiff but i but our tastes aren't
2: they, they don't overlap that much in, in this area
1: yeah, you a gigantic sparkly fountain pen to write down what parking spot you're in
2: yeah so <laughs> i took out a brand new notebook
1: and a brand new mechanical pencil and i had to write down like my parking spot and everything C- could not you just look for the big red tesla i mean how many other red teslas were there in the parking lot at the time
2: I, I, was, I was it was you know. i was lost man it was terrible like and so anyway so i I eventually found the pay station and the elevators and everything and I paid, and I couldn't use Apple pay. <laughs> I had to use my credit card like an animal. <laughs> and then, uh, then I had to find the courthouse from the parking garage, which was about a block and a half or two away. And so I walked out of the parking garage and basically immediately got lost. Like, <laughs> it was nice. like I, I like walked up and down the block, went different directions. I'm like, where the hell I, I, I had already forgotten even the name of the street that the courtroom was on.
0: You know, you <laughs> should have just printed map quest directions, like we did back in. Printed the, in map That's what I
1: used to do. You just need a hagstrom, is what you need. You should have. You should have driven there without navigation, too. Yeah, right.
2: And so, like, eventually, I found like somebody was walking by in a suit, and I'm, I figured he probably knows where the courthouse is. So <laughs> he's wearing a suit on a weekday morning. <laughs> so I asked him, like, "Hey, you know where the uh, courthouse is?" and I couldn't have lucked out with a better guy. He points like across, like diagonally across the street and he's like, that one's county, that one's city and around the corner from that one is federal. Like, great. All right. Thanks.
0: (laughs) So I, uh, that's amazing. Yeah.
2: So I, I went to the around the corner one, eventually found the federal. Like I, thank God I would never would have found it on my own. Like it was, it it was, I was going to walk around a very long time before finding that. Uh, so it's like, finally, like I'm a human uh, without a phone. Like I'm totally lost. Finally, I find this place. Um and I of course I I'm so mad when I get there that I have to do all this. That I immediately wanted to take a picture of myself outside the courtroom or outside the building, like flipping it off, and realized I had no camera with me and couldn't do that. So I'm like, oh, here we go, modern life strikes again.
1: You could still flip off the building even if there's no camera there to record it. It's not the same.
2: Anyway, so <laughs> it's not the same. So the uh, so I get in, I go through the security. The security guards seem pretty nice. And you know, take everything out, take everything out, take everything out. And then he said, he, he glanced at the MP3 player, and he, initially he said he, he gave it a quick glance, and he said, "No electronics." Uh, but of course, I was trying to get. I'm like, it's just an MP3 player, sir. And and he stopped for a minute, and he looked more closely at it because you could tell, you know, it's like like it's like TSA, like they get they have to say the same thing a million times to everybody who comes in, so they're they're sick of it. They, they're not really thinking when they first say it. He actually took took a look at it, and he realized he, it looks like an iPod Nano with white headphones wrapped around it, and he. He, like, asked the guard, like, in the next lane over, like, hey, we allow these now, right? And so they mumbled to each other, and then he waved me through. He said, all right, it's fine. So I had it. I got it through. I was able to bring nice. a, an iPod-like MP3 player into the courthouse, and uh, it was fine. So I can tell you, finally, with my day of using it in the, uh, in the waiting room, which is, fortunately, they sent us home early, and then we were done, and I don't have to go back. Because it turns out, this week, there weren't a lot of cases needing juries in White Plains. Uh, So it was a short... I only actually needed it for like two-thirds of a day. Uh, But in my two-thirds of a day of using it, I can tell you my review of the AGP Tech A02T $26 (laughs) MP3 player in 2019.
0: Please carry on.
2: Uh, It looks and feels like a $26 device. (laughs) The, The body of it is that like that like cheap soft touch rubbery plastic. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Like it's it, like every, every super cheap device is made from that. Now um, the screen is horrendous looking like the resolution is terrible. The viewing angle. It, like, I don't think there is a good angle <laughs> to view it. Okay. <laughs> like, it's just, if there is, I couldn't find it. Um, none of the buttons or switches feel remotely good to use. Um, the buttons only work about two thirds of the time. Uh, and Lots of navigation just requires like, you know, oh, just push it again. Like my kicking machine, like just push it again and it'll solve the problem. (laughs) It doesn't support the remote control clicker buttons on the iPod headphones for like volume up and down or play pause, which I immediately missed. For listening to podcasts, I had using a command line tool, of course, I had pre-processed the files to bake in smart speed.
0: Of course you did.
2: But they were all still at 1x. And there was no easy 30-second skip forward and back buttons. So Mm. it wasn't really ideal uh, for podcasts. Um, The device has some other issues as well. Uh, Upon boot up, about one out of five times, it says no files found, which is terrifying when you've loaded this up to go (laughs) to jury duty. But then you just wait a second and they're all there. Uh, Sometimes it doesn't resume from sleep and needs to be power cycled. When you do this, this is one of many conditions I found where it will lose the position in whatever you were listening to, which is another thing that made listening to podcasts fairly non-ideal on this device. It does support video playback, but it only plays 128 by 160 AMV files. (laughs) What? If if you look up AMV on Wikipedia, this is actually a format. Anime music video? No, it's actually a format... (laughs) That's like, it's made for like cell phones and like certain things that use a certain like certain type of chipset that's optimized to play only that. And it came with a sample video. So I was able to like look, at that, look at that video like an FFmpeg and it's like, what is this? What are the specs in this? But I have been unable to encode any other videos that it'll actually play for whatever it's worth. If you play a video, normally to get out of what you're doing, you would hit the, the menu button, like the M button on top. Um, if you do that, it shows you a menu, but none of the options are like quit. It took me a long time to figure out how to exit video playback mode. One of the options is update playlist. That's how you leave.
0: Oh my goodness.
2: (laughs) So, you know, for video, not so good podcasts. Not so good for music. It's fine. You know, not great, but fine. Um, To play or pause, you often need to wake it up first which often involves multiple button presses that often get lost or ignored. (laughs) And my favorite thing is adjusting volume to change the volume, which is a fairly common action that you often have to do quickly. You have to wake it up. So, you know, hit player pause, maybe one to five times over the course of a few seconds to wake it up. (laughs) Then you have to, there's a volume button on the bottom, but if you push it, nothing happens. You have to hold it down for a few seconds to enter the volume menu.
0: Oh, then
2: you hit up or down a few times to your desired volume level. Then you like hit play to be like, enter to set it. (laughs) So (laughs) this thing is pretty much a piece of garbage, but it worked. And I was able to slowly and clumsily listen to music and podcasts while I waited around all day to do nothing in jury duty. And that was totally worth $26 to me. So While this is a terrible product in absolute terms, I would actually say it's a pretty good value. (laughs) And I still, I find it amazing, just like in modern life, that I decided I wanted an MP3 player. I found one in a few seconds. I ordered it on a Saturday, and it was delivered on Sunday for $26. That's pretty cool. That is pretty cool.
1: I should have tried an iPod Shuffle because I know about the battery. I It's really old and it won't hold a charge. But like the Shuffle does everything you describe better: it retains your playback position, easy to change the volume, wakes up instantly, does all the things you're supposed to do, and is much less likely to be flagged as electronics by a random security guard. guard. That's what I would have gone with. Well, I don't, but I didn't have one. You don't have a Shuffle like in the house somewhere? No, the
2: only iPod we own is Tiff's old Mini. What, what happened to all the old other ones? You sold them all? I I never had that many. I I had. I think we had a total of two shuffles ever and one of them, at least one of them died. I don't know what happened to the other one. Um, We had TIFF's iPod mini and I had a iPod video, the 5G, I think, whatever the first video one was. I had that one and that's it. I never owned a Nano, neither did TIFF and I never owned any other like classic ones except for the video and that was it. And that one, I think that one died like 10
1: years ago or something like it, it's it, it died not recently probably could have found a chinese knockoff ipod shuffle but then that wouldn't have actually worked like an actual <laughs> apple iPod <laughs> right. shuffle would, would work yeah it's kind of amazing they can screw that up that badly and the volume changing thing when you go into the volume menu and change it do you get to hear what the new volume sounds like uh, while you're changing it yes
2: but you but you have to hit like the enter play button to exit the volume menu
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> so are you holding on to this for the next jury duty experience i i might as well i mean it's more likely
2: to work in five years than an ancient iPod. Well, we'll see.
1: True. We'll see. If put it in the box that says jury duty and you'll open it up and it'll just be an exploded battery. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> the plastic will all be like liquefied. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, gosh. <laughs> now, I'm also wondering if you were to do this again tomorrow for the sake of discussion, would you be spending any time splitting your podcast mp3s like in every minute so it's easier to seek effectively back to where you left off or like mark to yourself where you've left off because uh, you say that it loses your place a lot and, and it's just not a very good music player so that that's something my dad used to do all the time with like audiobooks that he would download like via MP3 or something like that. That he would slice them up so that instead of having each file be like I don't know a chapter or something like that, instead each file would be like thirty seconds or a minute or what have you, so that uh, it, so that it was easier for him to come back to where he was.
2: That was going to be my next move. Like so, I mean, so I went to jury duty for one day and then was was not needed after that, and so I had a very short term of of using this Mm -hmm. if i were going to be there longer i I think i would probably actually then at that point go buy an ipod nano like it's you know spend the 200 and like if i was going to be there for a long time and i and i would have an opportunity to use this you know more than once i would i would probably go that route Mm -hmm. i i also i think if i if i knew like if i if i go back and do it again and i didn't do that option there's this um there's a sony player that is basically the version of my little nice Sony recorder that isn't a recorder, like it's like the it's like the iPod Nano version of my little audio recorder that I have. It's like the same generation has lots of the same parts. I would it's like it's seventy five dollars, so it's more. But I would probably try that first before I did before I uh, did this. You know any any crazy hacks to make my twenty six dollar one work that much better um, because it is it seems like it's a nicer built thing. The reviews are a little bit mixed, but because you know the problem is like a new mp3 player in 2019 this is not a high volume market like there are digital audio players like there are like portable audio players that that are for audio files like for high-end audio listeners that support like high bit rate stuff and everything but those all look like phones because they all have these like they're all like the size of phones and they have they have like a big touch screen on them there's actually very few that aren't touch screens Um, but i i I wanted something that looked more like an ipod because i figured it'd be more likely to get through Whereas something that looks just like a phone, which is all the high-end models, I figured that was not likely to get through.
0: Did you read any of your book? Nope.